So, Bovine, I hear you've picked up a new cell phone. Is this true? Uh, should I start at the start with this? I mean, it's such a long tale for me <laughs> right now. Basically, what happened was this. So, and I, you know, it was so funny when I was this whole thing about the mystery console. It never, it, it was never supposed to be anything that big of a deal. Honestly, what happened was this. And I'll start from the story because I tried to tell story during stream, but I never got to it. I just realized I was reviewing my my um, Twitch stream from Saturday. I kept saying how I was going to explain the story. Never explained it. That that'll happen in my stream. Yeah, I fell asleep before you <laughs> even got to that point, so I yeah. think everybody's looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. So basically, what happened was this. So obviously, you know, I'm always on the lookout to see, you know, what what new things to stream, whether it be hardware, consoles, games. And what happened was I was doing research, and it was probably much. I think right after you did a gorilla stream of your Nokia Engage, and I was always thinking to myself, wow, that'd be so cool if there was a way to stream, you know, the Engage directly onto the stream right like through you know a connected video display so mm-hmm. i was doing some research to try to figure out what it was that was required in order to get the engage to be streamed and i remember because i used to work for a company that did some development work surrounding the nokia symbia phones and that's what the i mean that's what the engage Q, qd was basically based off it was a regular nokia phone and i remember there was the software development kit that allowed you to mirror what you were seeing on the phone onto like an application window display. And from there, you know, I figured as long as I can get that that part up and running, I can just stream that window. And it would basically, you know, everyone could see a crystal clear view of the games. So as I was going down that path, trying to figure it out, I ran into some information where it looked like there was this forum thread somewhere where people were talking about the ability to stream it out. And when I dug through it, I realized that they were actually not talking about the Nokia Engage, but they were talking about... They were talking about this secondary platform called Engage 2.0. And I didn't realize it at that time. So what happened is as I dug through, started to figure out the information, it turns out, one, there's no way to directly get the video out of a Engage still. So that's kind of like a pipe dream. And maybe one of these days something will come out where we can do that. So you don't have to strain your neck and kill your shoulder cam, you know. It's a very, things. very difficult system to stream that way. Because <laughs> the screen, first of all, is so small. And the backlit display is so bright, so it's uh, it's quite the difficult balance to try and stream and engage with a webcam. Yeah, so, yeah still, we can only hope, we can only pray. I still think you're insane for doing that, but you keep doing that and <laughs> try not to kill your back in the process. Yeah. But as I was digging through the information, um, so they were talking about Engage 2.0, which apparently there was, a, basically it was a follow-up to the Engage you know, regular, the normal Engage and the Engage QD. So Nokia, in their infinite wisdom, they said, hey, you know, we're not doing too well with this Nokia Engage, but we got some steam, so let's go ahead and try to release, like, a second version of it. So their plan was to essentially release an online service that would be compatible with, like, a number of their Nokia phones that they identified ahead of time that had, you know, the technical features, the physical button layout, Basically like a minimum set of features. And they wanted to release it as basically an Xbox Live or PSN network or even an iTunes store for better comparison. They wanted to release their version of an iTunes app store across, you know, some select Nokia phones that would be playing branded games and the branded games would essentially be called Engage 2.0. And to my knowledge, when I first ran into that, I looked into it because I had never heard of it. And I don't remember seeing anything about it. So when I looked it up... I mean, it turns out that there was, you know, 49 games that were released for this Engage 2.0 platform. And 
as long as you know you had one of these compatible phones and there was maybe about seven to twelve phones they had selected at that time that would be able to run these games so i put everything together in my head i said okay well as long as i get you know one of these phones and then i can get these games on there to run somehow and then pick a phone that had a way to do video there you go i had the i had the you know the ability to stream out these engage 2.0 games and I remember telling people on stream, like, whatever stream, I think we were probably in your stream that night, and I was telling people, hey, there's this new console that I'm thinking of streaming, and I did some research, you know, there's almost nobody on Twitch who streams these Engage 2.0 games, nothing that I've seen in anything I search. And Let alone YouTube videos, right? You had a difficult time even finding any YouTube videos. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing was, like, the way I was searching it, maybe I was searching Engage 2.0 games, and it wasn't bringing anything out that way. I mean, if you knew what the games were, you can then search individually and then bring them up after the fact. But they weren't like highlighted in a way that said, "Oh, here's a list of Nokia 2.0 games." Like I know Chaos Zero. He's he's been quick to point out after the fact my stream where I said, "Hey, it was tough to find YouTube." He's like, "Hey, there's all these YouTube videos across all these games." I said, "Okay, well, yeah, you know the titles and you know what to search for now." So I was trying to get them to cut me some slack but do we know how many exclusive 2.0 games there are like some of these games people were like oh this was available on this phone or that phone do we know how many of these nokia 2.0 or n-gauge 2.0 games were exclusive to the n-gauge brand yeah i mean when you try to go through the list of the 49 games that were officially released like you i mean you can go through each one and say okay pick it apart and say this one was never updated because a lot of them like people were pointing out, they were they were updated for a release later on down the line, like the version of the Crash Kart Racing game. Like that version eventually became the version that was released on the iOS. So at the time, it was the only platform it was available for. So eventually, a lot of these titles, you know, got updated to be released elsewhere. But there definitely were still some, you know, unique platforms. But I'd say of the forty nine, maybe a good, I'd have to look through it all the way. I would say about fifteen to twenty were only ever available on this platform. And not available in any. It's a good number. I mean, it's almost, almost half. Yeah, and I was kind of shocked too. Like they have this fighting game called One that I really wanted to stream, and it was essentially a full 3D virtual fighter esque, you know, 3D fighting game. Moved really well, animates well, and I, it was never released on anything else. It was probably some exclusive that was developed for them and never licensed out for anything else. I could be cr- Crazy. I believe that one also released on the regular N-Gage. No, However, they were planning well, yeah, to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I oh, think they were planning. planning. So it got canceled, right? Yeah, it got canceled and upgraded to the, to the 2.0 platform is what happened. A lot of these games were like in the middle of development, and then they got pushed to the next platform. And the crazy thing is, though, like after watching your stream games like that that are in a 3D environment, my it's, it's unbelievable how much better graphically these games were running than anything that the regular N-Gage could put out. Like, when you were playing Metal Gear Mobile, Metal Gear Solid Mobile, it's like, wow, this would not be possible on the regular N-Gage. Or it could be done, but it would run so sluggishly. Mm-hmm. And because of the angle, the viewing angle of the screen, like how small it is, it would be so cramped. That's the one thing that really blew me away the most, is how impressive some of these games were visually for the time. Yeah, I mean, and that... It's like they were based off of, it was like an offshoot of Java that was developed into a game heavy engine, right? Like it was a special thing that Nokia had developed from the ground up when they were creating the original Nokia, you know, 1.0 games. I guess we'll call them 1.0 for the sake of brevity. But, you know, it was an engine that they had created from scratch that took advantage of like parts of Java, parts of some homegrown code to kind of create a usable 3D engine. And anyone who's seen like, even Tony Hawk, right, for the original Nokia, which I think is one of the most impressive games to have 
on your original Engage. I mean, it runs a full 3D Tony Hawk environment, albeit a little slow on the frame rate side, but still definitely playable. And it was just because the Engage, the original Engage and the QD, they had kind of limited hardware. Now, these second generation phones that they were earmarking to have these 2.0 games, they had to meet a minimum spec of like, I think it was a dual processor, 300 megahertz, and they had to have a dedicated GPU processor for just graphics. So they were really setting the bar high. And as a result, they knew they weren't going to try to make them backward compatible with the one. They were essentially abandoning the original platform and starting from scratch. So they were kind of aiming pretty high in terms of graphical fidelity. Why in the world would they keep the N-Gage name if they're like so dead set on just like abandoning? I mean, understandably, because the original N-Gage games don't live up to the graphic quality that would that these games put out. But do you think it was a detriment to them to kind of keep the N-Gage name? In a way, just like Nintendo with the Wii U and the Wii, like kind of keeping the Wii U name, do you think it was a mistake to keep the Engage name, or do you think they should have changed the name to something maybe a bit more, I don't know, edgy or something that caters to gamers? Like, I don't know, what could they, what could they have done to have better marketed this stuff? Well, it was a double-edged sword, right? Because one, you know, for Nokia, especially for Nokia phones at that time, which were generally considered more, I mean, they were user-friendly phones, but they were really nothing on the game side, right? Like, yeah, they had, they, even for their built-in games, they're most famous for the snake game, right? The built-in tail chasing, the snake chasing the tail game. So outside of that, they never really had a presence. So I think that when they developed Engage 1.0, they really put a lot of marketing dollars and research and everything. I mean, they, they spent a lot of money to brand Engage as kind of like a gaming version of a Nokia side that has traditionally always been like more business and, you know, casual yeah. style. So I think on one end, it was smart of them to continue the Engage lineage because whatever, whatever, you know, whatever credit they built up with gamers, non-gamers, casual gamers with Engage, that was kind of like a built-in audience that they can pull from. But of course, you know, the other side of that, the negative side was that it was, the, there was a huge negative slant toward it as well. So it was kind of like you were taking the best of both, you were taking the good and the bad with it, but they might as well have done that to kind of pull forward whatever audience they had and then kind of present the new version. Now, on the other hand, they also alienated them at the same time by making sure that it was not going to be cross-compatible, forward-compatible, or backward-compatible. So, But I think but they probably... they had the numbers, right? They probably had the numbers and saw just how few people owned an N-Gage, and they were like, well, the chances that someone that has an N-Gage and they want to play those games on our phone is probably so slim that it doesn't even matter. Yeah, so they probably were thinking just the mind share, whatever mind share they built up but with the N-Gage brand, they figured we might as well just continue on with that, so... And I just wanted to elaborate on something that you said earlier because you kind of skimmed over it, but I don't think people really understand how ahead of its time this thing was. Mm. Or maybe you were going to get to this a bit more. But this thing, when you said it was sort of like an Xbox Live but Nokia branded, imagine having a store, you know, before... This is what, before the PSP Go and stuff, right? This was before iTunes App Store, before PSP Go Store, before any of those. So before any of those sort of devices that were going digital only they were trying to do this with games where they would give you a preview mm-hmm. of the game where you can play a demo and then after you play the demo you can decide if you wanted to buy it. Now unfortunately we weren't able to or at least you weren't able to find how much these games retailed for. So we were kind of trying to guess like maybe between 10, 15, maybe $20 tops depending mm-hmm. on the game. But it was such an amazing infrastructure where not only did it have like a demo play it before you buy it scheme which so many people are still asking for today you know just think how many times you want to demo a game on ps4 xbox one before you buy it but you still can't freaking do that um and they also had built-in achievements that was just so 
cool to see. I had no idea where Bovine's playing a game and it's like he catches a fish or something and it's like an achievement pops up. It's like <laughs> catch of the day or something stupid, you know, something like that, for example. And he gets 50 points. And then on the main screen of the phone with all the games listed, it has these these like cell phone type bars. Like it looks like a signal bar mm-hmm. where it actually shows the progress of how many achievements you've unlocked in that game in your game list. I just thought that was so awesome and unexpected. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, like, I was trying to put myself in the place of, in that time, you know, in that era, about what you would have had available from the palm of your hand in your mobile phone that was constantly connected 24-7. You had friends lists. You could, like, play. I, I don't remember if there were any games you could actually play, like, multiplayer server games, but I well, think... I wouldn't put it past them because Engage had games that you can play online like pocket kingdom had mm-hmm. online multiplayer which was so ahead of its time i wish i would have been around to play that game back when it was released it was some kind of like strategy um like unit based game that mm-hmm. i haven't really played because i feel like it probably should have been played in its heyday online but beginning uh, since engage games had online i wouldn't put it past them that some of these maybe had leaderboard integration or just something yeah, I mean, there was definitely, at a minimum, there was leaderboard integration. Like, you could track the progress of scores in certain games with your other players in your friends list. And, you That's know, like, so damn cool. Yeah, like you were saying, the trial system was very easy to do. And think about it, right? You could just download it directly to your phone on whatever your you know wide area radio connection was. And then also purchase them through the store to you know unlock the full version of the game. And the achievement things, they called them progress points. Something really awful. But the idea of what it was with the achievements per game. I mean, it really, the fact that they were still popping in the middle of the games as we were playing them this past week, you know, that was that was so surprising to me. And it was shocking to think that that was available to Nintendo, Nintendo and Sony don't even, like, do the whole achievement thing on the on the handhelds. Or, I know, I think, they don't do well, it well. Well, the Vita had, I take that back, Vita did have trophies, I believe, mm. but I don't think they were so fully integrated where they're, like, popping up on the screens you're playing. I could be wrong. I'm not a big trophy person, but Nintendo still refuses yeah, still to do an achievement-based system. <laughs> so I know. I Just to see what was available, what they were pulling off. And again, there were obviously... These were all new groundbreaking things for a mobile platform. So obviously they were running into a lot of bumps. Like I remember there was a reading online saying that nothing was working for like the first six months when they released it. Like people were buying trial, like they were buying full versions of the games from the trial, but then they wouldn't unlock it. So they were stuck with the trial. So people were complaining about that and how they said their servers were backed up and people were losing progress because all your games were being saved. There was like a set, like a cloud save feature too, in a way for some of the games. And of course that was broken. And then like friend messages, like there was friend limits. Once you went past 50, it like deleted everyone on your friends list. So they were obviously oh going through. God. Yeah, they were going through a lot of the hiccups that you see like today with the current, you know, multiplayer game networks. But again, to have that on a mobile phone network and they were they were just completely ahead of the game at that point. And if everything had been pulled off right and it worked well and they had covered more phones, who knows what could have been. They could have been the iTunes before iTunes hit. So all I want to say is that one fishing game that you were playing <laughs> Creatures blew of the me deep. away. Yeah, Creatures of the Deep. Was was that an exclusive for the That 2. was an 0? exclusive as far as I can tell. I cannot find that anywhere else. So That game was so beautiful. So it, it uses some kind of graphic engine that seems to take real-world photographs and kind of uses some kind of filter to make them look a bit three-dimensional or give them depth at least. So like mm-hmm. Bovine's Fishing in the world's most beautiful sunset with, you know... Uh, air balloons floating in the sky reflecting into the water you got birds flying overhead the most beautiful water reflection that you've ever seen in the world it's like 
holy crap, was that one amazing looking fish. I was blown away. Honestly, I did not expect something like yeah, that. Yeah, there was a lot one of, of the people best that were looking. amazed. Oh, yeah. It, it was amazing. Like, people were absolutely blown away by how good this game looked. It looked better than, like, certain Vita games. Honestly, yeah. not even joking. Like, yeah. it, it just it blew my mind how good it looked. I, I would say from the few games that you were finally able to play, mm. overall, I was really impressed with it. Because um, I wasn't really into cell phone gaming at all back then, because I didn't really have a cell phone that could support it, really. So kind of seeing games that were better looking than something that predated like the DS and the PSP and in some cases even the Vita was very impressive. Yeah, it really was. And just the fact like just like because this custom homebrew homebrew SDK that they had for their games, it just allowed full access to the hardware with very little overhead, which is really unheard of for for games on today's like cell phones because they always like to you know, not give you full access and take over the entire machine. But the Symbian OS really ran in a very efficient way and allowed for them to, when they were playing games, to just take full advantage of the hardware. It's just, I mean, I went through, I would say maybe about, like I was able to get 28 of the games installed and ready to go. And and just playing through like maybe about half of them, like I was really impressed with the speed of the 3D games. Like they weren't laggy, they weren't super low frame rate. Some of them were, but some of them ran really efficiently. But then... Just as the, like you were talking about, the graphical fidelity, the colors, and some of the things they would pull off, just amazing, unique for that platform, and hopefully I'll get it up and running again and be able to yeah, see so the what, rest. So what happened exactly? You were streaming. I fell, I fell asleep when you were playing, or I had to go to bed because it was getting super late, when you were playing Crash Nitro Kart. Uh, and apparently when you were playing Crash, the thing crashed. So <laughs> what, what happened there? Did you figure out, was it a battery issue? No, I, I still don't know what's happening. So what happened basically was that I had fully charged the phone and was just playing it because it actually, it sends a video out signal through a pretty ingenious way. It sent, there's a cable that you hook up to the headphone jack. And for some, some way it's wired so that it sends the video, like a standard composite video and audio left right signal out through that cable. And it splits out into the three and you just plug it into like a TV or a capture device. And you're able to get the output of your phone. Like zero problems. Zero. Like of all the phones I've ever owned in my life, this was the easiest one to ever get a video signal out of. It's kind of ridiculous. Like, like even my phones today, it's, impo- it's there's some problem that it always presents when you try to do that. But so I charged it fully and I played about, I don't know, almost four hours worth of games. So I was getting down to a low battery warning because, you know, obviously I've been playing these intensive 3D games. So it was pulling on the battery. So I plugged in the AC adapter just to keep it charged while I was still playing. And I think from what I've been reading, what happened was that it basically started using more power than was being charged. Like it was using it at a faster rate than it could refill. And I think it put the battery in like a super low state to the point where the phone can't recognize it. And I I hope that's the problem and that a new battery, once I get one, one's already on the way. And if I pop it in for works, fingers crossed, that'll... You know, resolve my issues because well, if not, to give you a little bit of hope, I don't know if you look back at your stream, but I noticed as soon as the video cut out for a very, very brief moment, uh, a warning popped up that said something about the battery right before it crashed. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably is the problem, something with the battery. I don't know if you saw that yourself. No, I didn't even, I didn't even see that part. So hopefully that's the case. So. Yeah, I, I looked back because I wanted to see like the moment it happens. And what it looked like, like what actually happened. And yeah, it, it flashed a very, very brief battery, like something, something about the battery. And then it just went dead. Look at Pete doing the detective work for me. I like it. 
Yeah, so hopefully that's the issue because I want to see more of those damn games. I have to say, yeah. I was like, okay, he's going to be streaming in a cell phone, like cell phone games. How good could those be? <laughs> but then when you started playing them, I'm like, god damn, this is actually pretty cool. And it's a great way to kind of preserve these games too, right? Because they're digital and who's to say that, you know, I'm not sure the, the ways that you went about acquiring these games, but who's to say that, you know, five, ten years from now, it's impossible to get these files or impossible to get them running on the phone. So it's really cool to see them not just archive like this, but done in a live capacity where people can kind of watch and comment and enjoy them in real time. Yeah, and the weirdest thing is, I mean, the level of DRM encryption they had for these games and their network, it was incredibly high and sophisticated. Like, honestly, the, I I had a big fear leading up to the stream that I would not be able to get these games running. Like, the, the amount of things I had to do, because essentially, if you get a phone today with it, like if you buy a Nokia, in my case, I was using specifically the Nokia N95, and... You have to you have to hack the phone first to basically make it run applications that's not supposed to. That's step one, and that's a process in itself that can take you know any number of steps. But there's ways to do it. But after that, the problem is since the games were only acquired through the digital service that they had, the Engage 2.0 online service. Think about if Xbox Live basically turned off all the servers. How could you play and acquire those games now, right? Mm-hmm. And and even today, you know, people can pull the files off of a hard drive of an Xbox Live game, but then in order to get it to activate and run, you could run into problems. And for the Nokia Engage 2.0 games, that was completely the issue. Every game every game that I, I had the file to install the game, and it, and every time you tried to install, it would say, oh, the server certificate couldn't be reached, or the serv- certificate has expired. And it was like all these error messages. And every time I'd knock down one wall to get to the next error message. It was like another message after that. Like, oh, the game installed, but now you'll have to give us the right date of when this game should have been valid. And then after that, there was some other bug. Like, it was so crazy, the number of things you have to do in order to get a phone like this up and running with their game. So It must have been a very momentous moment when you finally got everything all working and tested it, and it was, you know, functional. Oh, the, the level of joy and elation I had. I mean, I was so overjoyed, one, that it finally worked. Because I got to this point where I was able to win, like, one of the 20 games. And it was bumming me out because I thought, oh, great. If this one is working and the other 19 are not, it's because there's something wrong now that I can't fix. And I'll only be able to show off, like, one game. But then there was this little weird thing I had to do. And, and suddenly every game worked. And I was loading up every single one and trying them out. I was... I was just sitting there literally enjoying the games though. Like every time I booted one up, I was just going to do a check to make sure it ran. And then as I started playing them, I'm like, oh my God, these are actually really good games. So I started playing all of them. It was so much fun. But Well, hopefully you get the the battery problem solved and we can see some more N-Gage 2.0. But I wanted to ask you actually, what what's your history with the original N-Gage? You know, ah. how did you originally come to acquire it and, you know, how did you... What made you want an Engage in the first place? So I've got to say, back then, when the first Nokia Engage was released, and this is the side-talking taco one that everyone makes fun of. So obviously, when that one was first announced, I mean, I rode that wave of hate as well, where I was like, why the hell did they make some of these design choices? Like, you have to disassemble the phone to switch games, which is really dumb. Like, you literally have to turn off the phone, take out the battery, and then put the card underneath the battery, then assemble everything together. So that in combination with the tiny screen and then the games that were there. Like, I wasn't excited at all about it. I said, you know what? Forget that. And then the cost of the phone, I think, was, what, $300, $400? It was, I believe it was three ninety nine. Yeah, it was some crazy price that I thought to myself, why would I be paying more for this, you know, device than any of the current game consoles that were coming out at that time? So I kind of left the first one in the dust. I just dismissed it. But 
when they announced the second one, which was the smaller form factor, they fixed a lot of the issues. Now there's an actual memory card slot that you can swap the games in, in and out. It was much smaller. They got rid of the side, you know, talking features, just functioned like a normal phone. And the one thing that really, you know, pushed it over the edge for me is that I was on a mobile carrier that I think it was on T-Mobile. So they were running a very exclusive promotion with them where basically you can upgrade they had this thing where every two years you could use you know, your your cellular subsidy where they would pay the majority of the cost of a phone and you just pay an upgrade price, right? This is something that was very common for many years until they've completely gotten rid of it now. But I used that subsidy and I was able to get my Nokia QD upgraded from my old phone, which was like a Sony Ericsson. I got it upgraded to the Nokia Engage QD for 99 bucks out the door. And that, I mean... I needed a new phone anyways, and I figured why not just get a phone that was kind of geared toward being a gaming phone. Kind of a cool idea. And then I think I walked into a demo, like a GameSpot or, or GameStop, and they had a kiosk with Tony Hawk demo on there. When I played that, that was kind of the thing that told me, okay, this game is actually capable of playing games. So why not? Let's just take a, let's do an upgrade cost for this phone. And when I got it, just fell in love with it because just the idea of playing 3D games on a small, tiny you know, phone that I had with me at all times. Like, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world at that point. And I tried to get, I got to get maybe maybe five to ten games for it. And I was really enjoying it, but I left it in my pants and then washed the, the jeans and it killed oh, the phone. <laughs> yeah, I remember, too, the first time I ever saw an Engage in person was at GameStop when they had a kiosk. And it was such a small, like, sad kiosk. It really was. It was just a little tiny section of the store. You can tell that Nokia probably just didn't have the confidence they really needed to kind of like maybe pay a little bit more money for a bigger display but it was just such a small display small selection of games and i remember looking at it and i was like this is cool and then i saw the price and i was like okay probably not because it came out around the time when i was in high school and i was like yeah i can't afford this crazy thing right now but same thing i was very impressed for the graphics at the time like seeing tomb raider running on that thing was the moment where i'm like wow this thing is pretty powerful because Mm -hmm. you know this is predating the I don't remember exactly the, the gap between it but uh, predates the DS and mm-hmm. you know for its time 3D graphics like that even though the screen was pretty small was still very very impressive it, it pretty much looked like a, a slightly gimped PlayStation game on a handheld which was really impressive exactly. for the time and so did you grab my, one then or no no I couldn't oh. afford it then um, hmm. I got my N-Gage well I got a uh, a package for Secret Santa from Digital Press many, many years ago. Um, oh. Probably when I was like 13, 14 or so. And one of the games the person included just randomly was Pandemonium on the N-Gage. And it's not like that I've, I was a big Pandemonium fan or anything like that, but I fell in love with the cute little case. I swear to God, it was the <laughs> cutest game case I'd ever seen. And I was like, wow, I will collect for the N-Gage now because this case is just too adorable. Um, if you've never seen an N-Gage case before, it's pretty much like, I don't know, how would you describe it? Half, well, maybe, wait, about... I just th- opened one, yeah, so... It's cool Two-thirds because... of a DS case, right? It's like, <laughs> if you chop off, like, the upper half of a DS case, that's pretty mm. much what an N-Gage case is. It is a very cool case, because inside, they give you, like, a built-in storage case for four other games. There's slots for six games total in every N-Gage case, and, but you also get a built-in removable plastic clamshell case where you can hold four more of your engage games to go <laughs> what was their thinking on that though because just think about it right if you have four engage games mm-hmm. that means you would have four of these plastic cases 
every just single so one. oh my god it's such a waste of plastic at the same time but it's a cool idea it's some something to do inside of that case that probably could have been just like a little memory card case to begin with you know? well at least you get a nice widescreen style booklet of instructions right like it's like a 16 by 9 aspect ratio instruction panel so you get a nicer thicker more comprehensive manual so i'm glad they went that route <laughs> They're they're really cute cases. We'll just say that. So that's originally what hooked me onto the Engage, and it took me, um, you know, it took me a while after that to uh, Oops, to eventually get an Engage to commit to it. And um, I was glad I did. I, I managed to pick up a, a fairly nice little bundle of it on eBay. The QD, of course. I would never recommend anybody get the original. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I got the QD with a nice bunch of games. Um, a lot of the games are not that great. But surprisingly, there's a, a decent amount of games that would really surprise you. Um, unfortunately, most of the really good games are very, very late releases on the system that in turn are quite rare and very expensive. I'm very surprised that the N-Gage prices these days um, kind of skyrocketing yeah, to unbelievable levels. Yeah. I'm not sure They used to be why. really cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just because people are exploring other avenues for collecting people are moving into those really niche consoles and you know there's apparently more and more engage collectors out there now because people are buying these games it's not like the rare games are sitting there unsold people are buying them for you know pretty high prices yeah i mean the um, average all... price for these engage games i mean they're well i mean i would say 10 minimum starting right even for like the lowest right. cheapest game the the lowest and cheapest games used to be like you couldn't even give them away for two dollars hmm. but now people are asking 10 plus and the problem is with the rare games, there are not that many made. So when they do come up for sale, those N-Gage collectors are kind of clamoring for them. And uh, they're driving the prices up to, you know, 40, 50, 60, 80 plus for certain rare games. Like, it took me so long to get a copy of this game called one of the Warhammer 40K games, uh, Glory Glory or Death, I believe it's called. Uh, but it's so rare. I can't tell you how long it took me to get that game. I still haven't played it because I would like to stream it one day, maybe, if it's doable. Um, because I don't know how small the font is in that game. Man, it took me years of waiting to get that game. Uh, but there's really cool exclusives on the N-Gage. Like High Seas is one that people that played the N-Gage usually recommend because it's a, it's like a pirate-themed ship-based uh, Advance Wars strategy game. Mm -hmm. Like you're moving around tiles. So think Advance Wars, but just ship and pirate-based. It's so cool. Um, that Ashen, a lot of the Ashen, Ashen game was pretty... But that was an exclusive too, right? And it's a 3D yeah. first-person role-playing game, I think? Uh, 3D shooter. So it's like a... It's like a Doom kind of Wolfenstein, or more of like a Quake type shooter, hmm. um, or Duke Nukem. It's um, I played it a while ago, but it's fully 3D. It's got a story. It's uh, it's got a pretty decent like there's a decent amount of story in that game. Um, the environments are quite varied. It's not like you're moving. When when I say Doom and Wolfenstein, you know I'm just giving you something in terms of what kind of shooter to compare it to. Mm -hmm. But the environments are varied. It's not like you're just moving around tile based. Uh, environments that just have textures on them it's it's a full 3d environment um quite an impressive game and it's it's playable despite being on a phone with a bunch of buttons and a d-pad it's it's playable and i think that's the the thing about engage is a lot of the games are playable it's difficult but they are playable um there's a lot of rpgs on the system uh games like requiem of hell which is a diablo clone which is actually a pretty competent little diablo clone um, there's a game called The Roots, which doesn't sound like an RPG, but basically what it is, it's a single-player World of Warcraft knockoff where you 
go on quests and just dungeon crawl. Really fun game. Um, one of the more uncommon ones. There's even a Xanadu game on there, if you're familiar with the Xanadu series. Part of the Falcom Xanadu series? Xanadu Next, so you get a full-on dungeon crawler on there, too. Huh. Interesting. From, uh, Falcom, so... Yeah, I mean, there's you got to do some digging. Uh, however, you know, Engage I think, falls prey to this new sort of movement, we'll call it. <laughs> it's so funny to think of it this way of, you know, YouTube reviews that are kind of like looking at the Engage and kind of just slamming it for a failure, but they don't look at the positives. Mm. And, uh, you know, just the example that I brought up earlier, Pocket Kingdom, uh, they had something called the Engage Arena, which was this online hub or community that you can sign up for. I believe it was free. I don't think you had to pay anything. Where you can play certain Engage games online multiplayer, which at the time was just like unprecedented. So it's, uh, and it has a lot of really great licensed titles on there too. Like it had the Sonics, it had the Monkey Balls, even though Monkey Ball is really difficult to play. When you look at the lineup, I mean, you got Tomb Raider, uh, you've got Poyo Poyo on there, you got Crash Bandicoot, Kart Racing, Nitro Kart, the same one that you were yeah, playing. Yeah, MotoGP, so so, Red Faction. Not as good version, yeah. Uh, Red Faction, Tom Clancy right. games. Yeah, 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 a bunch of Ghost Recon games. And one of the Ghost Recon games, Island Thunder, is actually a pretty pretty damn good game. I, I remember streaming that. Oh, Elder Scrolls, how can we forget? Oh, Elder that's Scrolls, right, yeah. Shadowkeep. <laughs> There's an exclusive Elder Scrolls game on there, okay? I've streamed it before. <laughs> not... Uh, not the easiest game to stream because the frame rate is really bad. Uh, it's a full-on Elder Scrolls game. First person. You've got an open world. You've got quests. You've got NPCs. You've got dungeons. Is it difficult to play? Absolutely. Um, because it's just really cumbersome. It's got a very low frame rate. But it's an Elder Scrolls game. Portable. <laughs> First person. Crazy. My my favorite game on the platform was this one. It was an overhead like World War Two. Yes, like Path RTS of Glory. Game? Yeah, Pathway yeah, to Glory. The Path, graphics, Pathway to Glory. Yeah, so so good. Game. Such a great series. And that was a six-player online game, if I remember correctly. Like you could play multiplayer versus. Was that one of the arena games? Yes. See, yes. See, I forgot what games yeah. had it. That's so awesome. <laughs> and there was a little-known sequel too for that called um, Oh Jesus, what was it? Island Thunder. There was a sequel to Pathway to, to Pathway Glory. to Glory. Yeah, there was a sequel. Huh. It's uh, it's one of the more hard to find games on the Engage, but there ah, was a sequel to that because I love that game. Yeah, if there's a reason for you to buy an Engage and you're not looking for a game that's like going to break the bank, Pathway to Glory is absolutely a must buy if you're a fan of yeah. strategy, like top down, kind of like tactical games. I mean, that's worth the price of admission alone. Between that and getting a a, a cut down version but running well on Tony Hawk, like, and like, I, I don't actually think I ever got Tomb Raider, but like I think between Tony Hawk. The Pathway to Glory game, some of the RTS games. It's, it's a great system to pick up games for. One of the most obscure games on the console that once again took me a long time to get. It's a little bit more easy to find now for whatever reason. Maybe a couple of new old stocks showed up, but it used to be so hard to get. Uh, it was a game from, um, what is it? Rifts? Or no, what? Do you know the game I'm talking about? It's like Rifts something. It's a, I can go look at my collection real fast, but hold on, let me, let me get the correct title so that I don't sound silly. It's based on like an old board game. Um, oh, that's uh, Rifts, damn it. Engage. Uh, yes, I would. Okay, Rifts. It's called Rifts: Promise of Power. Um, and Rifts was an old, like, kind of like D and don't want to. I never played it, but think of it as like a a D and D like tactical role playing style um, book series, mm. and then. It was pretty prominent, actually. 
N-Gage, for whatever reason, even the PC didn't get a Rifts game. You know, think of it like a Pathfinder D&D type thing. Uh, they they got a, a Rifts game on the N-Gage wow. in this universe, and it's a it's a top-down tactical RPG, like level-ups and squad-based, sort of like a, you know, think of it like a, um, I don't want to say XCOM, but, you know, think of it like an XCOM-type universe mm-hmm. with, you know, moving your characters around, turn-based combat. However, the problem with it was... It was so slow. Um, a fight would take you like a half an hour. Problem is, it's a great game. It's it's at its core a really great game. Uh, just another example of, you know, the kind of games that you can find on the Engage if you do your research and if you got the money to, you know, plop down for one of them. I mean, I always thought the funny thing about, uh, or the good thing about these type of platforms where you're trying to get cut down versions of full 3D experiences, like one, one hand, they could just do like a cut down version, like lower res, lower small environments, lower polygon count of a 3D game. But then the one, the games I love most are the ones where they change the game. I mean, like the Splinter Cell games, of course, they're 3D, third person, you know, tactical espionage games, but on the, on the engage, the version that they have on there, one of the versions that they have on there, there's a 3D port version, but then there's another one that's like a side-scrolling version of it as well. Then they kind of try to retain like the same stealth gameplay, but just from a completely different perspective. And I always appreciated that on some of these handhelds, and even if we talk about like Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, DS, like you'll get a new take on an existing game that you're maybe familiar with initially, like in a full 3D world, but then they give you a completely different arena, like the Klonoa games on Game Boy Advance, how they're straight 2D side-scrolling platformers versus the 2.5D games on the PlayStation 1 and 2. I love how you can get a different version of the same kind of game between like a handheld and its, you know, big brother console. I always thought that was cool, especially with the Engage. And the N-Gage, yeah, the N-Gage did do 2D quite well. However, you have to keep in mind that if it's a side-scrolling platformer like Sonic N, uh, they can be really difficult and unwieldy because of the screen. So yeah, it's flipped the wrong way almost. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> vertical screen that is not very wide at all, so it's kind of hard to see where you're running. But if you're playing a slower-based stealth game like a Splinter Cell, then yeah, it's, gonna, Makes sense. it's probably going to work a little bit better than Sonic, because Sonic that was, N is yeah, pretty poor. That was definitely one of the weirdest decisions for the Engage 1 and QD, right? Like, just that the, the <laughs> wrong flip screen. They were taking the original Nokia you know, standard portrait-style resolution and, you know, adapting that to a bunch of games. I'm sure that caused a lot of headaches for the game devs, but yeah, it led to, led to, lends itself to unique experiences of those games, if anything. So speaking of all these cell phones, <laughs> one of the discussions we were going to have is what actually constitutes something to be a video game console. And I've, I've been kidding around with Bovine these past weeks as he's because he revealed to me what the console was before anybody else knew about what it was, and I was like, huh, interesting. Because if it were me, not that I would say it's not a console, but I would have a very hard time saying, oh, this is my game console. I think the more I thought about it today, I was like, I think the way I would refer to it, so we're going back to Bovine's new phone, the uh, the Nokia N95, was it? Mm-hmm. Is that the correct? Yeah, N95. N95, right? Can you still hear me? Let's see. Hold on. Yeah, I got you, Pete. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry. Yeah, sorry my, I don't know if my audio is cutting out. We've still been dealing with those issues every once in a while. But it was, it was called the Nokia N95, right? Correct. N95. Okay. Yeah, so we're, we're going back to... We're going to discuss, right? Is the Nokia N95 a video game console or... Is it a cell phone with the capability to play video games? Okay, hold on. So, Before you do that... You want the uh-huh. you want the dictionary.com 
definition of a console first before we go forward. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it says, okay, also called game console, gaming console, video game console, a computer system specifically made for playing video games by connecting it to a television or other display for video and sound. Now, obviously, that's pretty generic, right? But if we were to take just the base definition, where does this conversation go? It's a goddamn cell phone, bovine. There's no two <laughs> it, ways about it. It is a it's cell a phone. goddamn cell phone. <laughs> you can make the argument, though, right, that oh, yeah, yeah. as one of its purpose-built things, like even if we take the original Nokia Engage, like if we were to say, okay, hey, here was the first cell phone that the company was trying to market as a video game system, right? And they didn't do much. All they did was take any any one of the existing hardware frames of their existing phones they slapped on a d-pad labeled two buttons as a and b and then gave it the ability to read you know in in the case specifically for the engage to read mmc cards that had the game data on them right mm-hmm. so existing cell phone converted maybe modified a little bit to play games and then you get game cartridge does that then become in your mind like a, a true video game console well i think it i think the the reason why it's hard for a lot of us to accept um, something like the Nokia N95 as a game console is because we've had this kind of like the terminology I think is the biggest culprit, right? Where I'm okay with calling it a video game platform. I'm okay with calling it even maybe possibly as weird as it sounds like a video game system. Mm-hmm. For me, for whatever reason, the word console in my mind is like a machine that hooks up to my television and that's like its sole purpose. For whatever reason, I have such a hard time in my mind envisioning a game console as a, as a cell phone. However, to be fair, a lot of things are called game consoles such as, you know, um, a lot of the sort of like plug and play, um, old like 90s, uh, what, what was that one called? Video, uh, the video, shit. There was this, there was this uh, light gun game that was released in Japan and uh, Europe. It never came out here in the U.S. That you would use VHS tapes and you'd hook it up to your VHS and your TV. The Action Max? And, uh, not the Action Max. It was Video Satellite? No, not Video Satellite. Maybe it was. It was really obscure. Um, it's something that's on the video game console library website. Mm-hmm. But just, just as an example, like that is considered a video game console when all it is is just a gun. The console is the gun. But I think what it is, too, is sort of what you were mentioning, and I brought this up when we were discussing this in your stream, where I feel like the original N-Gage, it's all about the marketing, right? Where the N-Gage, it was marketed purely, mostly, I'd say, 80% as a video game platform or system or console, or whatever you want to call it. And then it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, it's also a cell phone. Whereas with N-Gage 2.0, I feel like it's like, oh, here's this software game software that you can play on on your cell phone so i don't know i feel like it it comes down to the marketing i think is sort of like that weird gray line um in saying that this is a game console now does it play games absolutely does it hook up to your tv yes but it's sort of a how would we put this okay so let's look at it this way right i brought this up too so would you call like an ipod or an Apple Watch, a video game console, because it plays games. Okay, well, the, let's say for the original, one of the bigger examples, I think, like if you take the original iPod Shuffle, 
right? Or not even the iPod Shuffle, like just the original iPod, the video iPod, I guess is what it was called. It was the first one that had like a full screen that you can play videos off of. So I think that was the first platform outside of the iPhone that Apple released actual games for it. Like you could play very simple games that use the rotary control. Now, if someone, if you hand me your video iPod and then you give me a version of, I don't know, let's say Tetris was on there, right? You say, hey, you want to play a video game? They hand me a video iPod. And I, I, my initial take would be you're crazy, right? This is not a console. Yeah, I know you gave me a version of Tetris to play on this little device, and I can, in theory, manage the controls by rolling the wheel and clicking on it, which is no different than playing any other version of Tetris. But in my mind, I would immediately dismiss that. This is not a game console. This is a video iPod that just happens to play a version of Tetris. Right? And is, but is that, in the end, enough to call it a video game console? I mean, the more and more I think about it these days, and it's not just to back up my play on the Nokia N95 or anything like that, but I started thinking back to other things that were very purpose-built for something else but happened to play games. And I think in the end, if you give me anything, I don't care if it's a TI-84 calculator, if you give me like a little Super Mario Brothers watch, those really like primitive LCD ones. Like To me, the more I think about it, as long as you give it to me, and if I can enjoy some dedicated time playing the game, Right, stand alone from anything else it does, like telling the time, playing my music, whatever it is. To me, I'm gonna qualify it as a video game console because I am playing a video game on this, you know, piece of hardware. Like to me, the definition is very low bar, and I'm gonna call anything that does that a console. At this point. I, I, I just want to clarify real fast for the listeners: like we're not we're not arguing, right? This is not an argument no. over whether or not this is his phone is a game console or not. It's just an interesting discussion, right? Because here's the next point that I'm gonna bring up. So. If someone has a refrigerator that plays games, is it a video game console, Bova? Yes, absolutely. It absolutely is. <laughs> Look, okay, I was okay, at so Best Buy. Who, who, <laughs> I was at Best Buy Someone today. needs to live stream their refrigerator on Twitch. No, seriously. If I was at a Best Buy today and Samsung, their current top-of-the-line refrigerator, it has an 8-inch Android tablet built into there, right, with full touchscreen functionality. And no kidding, but you can just tap on the you can tap on the Android app store you can download angry birds you can download you know plants versus zombies and you can just sit there in front of your fridge you know waiting for whatever the hell you'd be waiting for in front of your fridge you can just play games on it i mean to me that's gonna qualify i mean that that's a stretch because that's just someone who essentially taped an android tablet onto a fridge right you can't call the whole fridge a console but you know, there are some certain boundaries that you can step across for that. But I really think that anything from like a game and I mean, like a, if you look at an old game and watch or even those Tiger LCD systems, when would you call those game consoles, right? When would you call? So you're saying you wouldn't call them a game console? No, no, those. I, that's what I'm saying. Like, would would someone, if majority, you hand a Tiger LCD unit to 10 people today and, mm-hmm. you know, you let them play the awful game and you know, their limited scoring and playability. But would you ask them, would you consider this thing a game console? So can we get an official definition of what, like, not just a game console, but like console? Because see, that's the problem that I have. When I hear the word console, it just, to me, I have such a hard time envisioning like a tiger handheld to be a console. When I hear console, I think of like a, a, a like something that isn't just dedicated to one game. It's something that, you know, you can plug controllers into or multiple games. Is is there like an official definition of what a, a console I don't think means? So. I mean, look at that remember there was that game and watch 
there was a Game & Watch series that had two built-in controllers that you could put the Versus series, right? So you could you could open the system up, and it was like an oval clamshell. You would open up, there would be two dedicated controllers, one for player one and player two, and it would just have a D-pad and a button. But you could set it up, you can sit there and play Versus Game of Hockey, I think Boxing was the other one. There was a couple games for that. But when I looked at that system, like if I were to you know, add it into our conversation today... I guarantee you that would definitely be called a game console by the majority of people who would try that out, right? And what was it that put them over the edge? The dedicated controller? I mean, the fact that there's only one game on there, I get that part, that it's not interchangeable. But looking at the technology and what limits it, the fact that you can... I mean, it's it's only made to play games, right? I mean, any of the Game & Watch series are primarily just to play one version of one game. But that, in definition, would be a game console to me. Not being able to switch cartridges or switch games, I don't think that's part of being a console. I think the thing is, too, a lot of times when I think of a handheld, I think of it as that, right? I don't say, oh, this is my 3DS, my game console. I, I usually always say, oh, this is my game, like my handhelds, my handheld collection or something like that. I actually don't... When, when, like, if I were to make a list of game consoles that I you have... You wouldn't include your handhelds? It, no, I would. It just <laughs> feels so weird to me. I don't know why Does this it? is instilled in my mind that... I don't know if I'm the only one, but I call them handhelds, like, for me. No, you're not the only personally. one. Trust me. This is a constant point of debate in my chat because it triggers the hell out of me. Every time people... No, like... I mean, I, I, I consider them game consoles, but it just feels weird to call them that. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you can't, like, hook it up to a TV, maybe? Like, what is the defining point that separates it in your head from your other consoles, like a PlayStation or Nintendo, that you're not... I just think because growing up, they, the handhelds were always just referred to as that, right? It's just, see, it comes down the terminology again, where reading articles or watching video reviews, like, I never really heard many people refer to um, a Game Boy as a console. I heard them just refer to it as, as a, like, a game handheld. Mm-hmm. System. System, the word system, handheld system, was usually paired with a Game Boy or a PSP, more so than a console. And I think that's kind of where, not so much like my, I don't want to say a, a bias in calling it that, but I just think it's from hearing all these years, it referred to other terms rather than console, is why it's probably hard to accept or, you know, understand why a cell phone would be called a game console. I think that's kind of where I'm coming from mostly. So what is the switch to you right now? What's that you cut out? What is the switch, the, what is the switch to you then right now? Since it is essentially a handheld. A console because a console. It, it's it docks and hooks up to my TV. Because it, it's <laughs> well, let, all right. So the Switch. Oh man, so it's Nintendo, right? It's, okay. it's something that you can play on your TV. Mm-hmm. It is a handheld. It's a it's a console and a handheld. That's how how I would refer to it, right? As weird as that might sound, a handheld <laughs> and a console. But is it also a console? Could you say, oh, this is a console? But it also doesn't sound weird when you say, oh, this is my. It's a console and a handheld, right? Would that sound weird to you? If I said uh, it's a console and a handheld? The problem to me is that I don't have, I mean, the definition of console, I mean, the word is starting to lose all meaning to me right now in this conversation in terms of console. Like, I don't even remember why the hell we call them consoles in the first place, honestly. I I don't either, to be honest. (laughs) Maybe maybe we just, maybe to solve this problem, all we have to do is just say a home console. Home console versus portable? Or handheld? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so then you get running from now the on for the rest. For the rest of this podcast, <laughs> yeah. we're just gonna say instead of saying a console, we're gonna say it's a home console. But you or know, it's a the, handheld console. The funny thing is, I used to call them video game systems. I never used no. that word console. 
Right. I also used to call them systems. Right. I don't know where I started calling stuff console. And I feel like it's sort of interchangeable, right? Where you can say console and system, and it kind of means the same thing. Mm-hmm. Is there a distinct difference between saying a system and a, ha- a console? To me, I thought console gave it the limited the limited um, label of only doing those things. Like, for example, you call... Like, say, if you were to refer to the 3DO system, they called it very specifically, they labeled it as a 3DO entertainment system because they wanted to pump the abilities of it being a CDG player, karaoke player, whatever the hell it did, right, outside of playing games. That was kind of like when they started to give additional features to a system, right, or even the CDI. I don't think it was ever called a console. It's always been called a system, right? Uh, yeah, I believe, well... See, so that's You'd have why to I look think... at like marketing material for it, right? It's, yeah. See, now we're getting like real deep. But well, the CDI, right, was never really the CDI was always like an entertainment system before it was a game console. Ah, so this the is game your baby is... here. What do you? Yeah, think this there, is then? my baby. So <laughs> I still think it's. I would still say it's a game console because of the library of games. Like it, it is a game console, but it wasn't. It was sort of like fifty-fifty. The marketing for that thing was like, oh, it plays movies and interactive discs, and it also does games. Like it was sort of. On the side. A melting pot of everything. <laughs> right. I mean, the damn thing doesn't look like a video game anything, right? It looks like a freaking CD player. <laughs> I mean, it depends which version you bought. Um, With the controller, they started I guess. Yeah. Manufacturing them to look more like a game console <laughs> when I guess they realized that no one gave a shit about the movies and music and stuff that you can do on that thing. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting discussion, right? And hopefully this kind of stirs in people's minds that are listening. Like, maybe unconsciously you've kind of just been calling game consoles like systems and you're like wait a minute you know i don't know maybe it'll just kind of like make people think i mean definitely what, for me. uh, what you've been calling stuff all along yeah right? like i so the I next time you go to tell someone about your switch will you say this is my Nintendo handheld switch. No, this is my switch system <laughs> <laughs> this is my switch console handheld system. <laughs> yeah i don't want to say that it's too many words but no, honestly, as I, I really through most of the majority of my life, I've called everything systems. So I think I kind of didn't run into that problem. So I was able to easily, I guess, shove game consoles into everything in my line of systems. Like, oh, here's my, my Game Boy system. Here's my Sega Master system. Here's my Nintendo Entertainment system. I mean, hell, they have system right there in the name, right? So, mm-hmm. but that was the funny thing, right? Because you remember, obviously with the Nintendo, with the Famicom, there was that big thing where, after the crash, Nintendo wanted to change the look of the system to not look like a toy. They wanted to make it look like like a media device, like a VCR. So they they did the whole change. They switched the look of it to the toaster, and they ended up calling it the Nintendo Entertainment System, not video game console, because the original Atari Twenty Six Hundred was called the Video. What was it Video Computer System, or did they they call that a console too? Did they actually also use system for that too? I feel like we need a Nintendo history expert with yeah, us right can now. Get Norm I'm not on sure. the line or something. <laughs> Call gaming history. <laughs> but no, it I'm is interesting. To, I'm the trying to remember thing. the acronym for the um the Memorix VIS V I S Video Information System. No, that couldn't have been right, right? VIS? I don't know. I don't I, whatever the the meaning of VIS was, I can't remember. But that what, was another what's this that's another that? interesting uh, console. The Memorix VIS V I S. It was a edutainment type console. Ugh. Yeah, that that had pretty much no games on it. But it's the, I'd love to know if that's see now on the video game console library website that is referred to as a game console. Really? Cause so it's the, such a weird line, right? It just seems like by person, person by person, and collector by collector. Mm-hmm. Like even something that is just meant to play like edutainment software. Mm-hmm. 
could be considered a game console still. So it, it just, I guess it's just up to interpretation. I would say so. Cause I mean, look, it was called the Tandy Memorex Visual Information System. Mm-hmm. So. Which is still referred to as a game console by collectors. Correct. So, but you know, it's like, you get to just terminology like people that call nintendo cassettes or tapes or oh god like that thing drives me nuts like when people oh here are my here are my nintendo tapes why are you why are you calling them tapes Bovine, that that is one of the greatest things you can ever hear at a garage sale or yard sale because oh. if you ever hear someone call them nintendo tapes you're like oh hell yeah they don't know what they got here we go 10 for one dollar this <laughs> <laughs> that is true though so but yeah i mean the funny thing was that it was uh, the, like i was ready to get hauled away by pitchforks when i finally revealed the system or in, when i inadvertently revealed it but the, honestly it was split 50 50 like people were were okay with the idea of this nokia phone that happened to play this platform games as you know a new console and then others were like that's a phone straightened through and it's nothing else other than that it just happens to be games but I will but, say that once people saw the games, yeah. definitely there was a change of tone from the majority of the people in the in the room. So everybody was like, "Ah, oh, cell phone games from this <laughs> time." It's like, but wait a minute. In the end of the day, these games are actually kind of cool, and right, yeah. that's that's what it comes down to: is does it have good games? Yes. That's why you know I'm not one to talk. I play games on my iPad all the time, and there's a lot of people that don't even consider oh, yeah. mobile games on an iPad to be like stuff to even want to come within a thousand feet of. But I am a very big advocate for mobile gaming on my iPad, and I will stick by that. Where you know, I'm sure I don't call my iPad a game console, but it's certainly a a platform to play my games on. Is the way I refer to it. Yeah, and I will say the one thing that does reach one of those definitive barriers for me is if it's only touchscreen. Like, if there's no way I can have a controller attached to the system, then I kind of draw the line at calling it a you know video game system slash console. Like for some reason. I can't equate a touchscreen-only interface as being a true console in my head. So, I mean, I guess in a way, in my old ways, I have this, you know, arbitrary set of rules that I define by that as well, so. And the crazy thing is I've never used a controller with any of my iPad games. I do everything touch-based, which, you know, I guess it's just a laziness factor where I just feel like... No, 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 it's like... because you're and playing a lot of the games... games I... You're playing the games that were designed with the touch-screen interface in mind. Like, they design around that, not as a limitation of... Most of them, right? Yeah. I mean, they're getting better and better at, like, virtual joysticks and stuff like that. But it's just more of a convenience. Yeah, I know, I know. But some of them are actually pretty good, the the newer ones. Yeah. Uh, The best example I'll give is, if anybody's ever played Baroque on the Wii or the PS2, there's a little-known port for iPad that not many people know about. But Baroque, that Atlas-published RPG, is on the iPad, and you can play it with a virtual joystick. And, yeah... It's as hard as it sounds. But which version do. is it? The PS2 or the Wii one? It's um, or some weird. I'm not sure down. which version it would be, but it's essentially the same version of the Wii. Because the Wii and the PS2 versions are pretty much identical. It's just the Wii version has waggle controls. Hmm. Um, the iPad version, however, strips out all voice acting, which is a really really cool aspect of hmm. the original and the really cool cutscenes. But yeah, there's some really ambitious games with virtual joysticks. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I don't, I never, I'm not one to dismiss the iPad platform or any of these new touchscreens. I mean, I think there's some amazing games that you can have a lot of fun with and enjoy to the same level that you can with normal console slash system games. Like, I mean, I remember playing through Plants vs. Zombies and thinking to myself, wow, this is like the perfect real game. It was like maybe one of the first real games I encountered on the iPad or whatever I used at that time that I thought to myself, okay, maybe this platform can be legit for certain games and 
but again, right, it's, it's just a game that focused primarily on a touch interface, but let all the game, left all the game elements around the design for being a touchscreen game, like not encountering any limitations by not having a true controller. So, but you're right. There are a lot of people who just will not accept it as a game platform, even though a lot of those games are being ported as indie games to consoles and they still don't want to give it that credit. So honestly, every time someone's like, Oh, mobile isn't video game. Like, I don't want to play those games. It's like the one game that I always bring up is, um, final fantasy dimensions, which, you know, for Final Fantasy fans, every time they think of it, because there's a lot of Final Fantasy mobile games now. It never used to be that way, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of mobile Final Fantasy games now, and not all of them are the best games, and a lot of them are this weird sort of like free-to-play grindathon. But hidden away in the depths, a very early mobile Final Fantasy game called Final Fantasy Dimensions was released. You can buy the entire game for twenty dollars, or you can buy it, you know, broken up into episodes, where you can buy like say maybe the first quarter of the game for five bucks and then if you like it buy more um however don't let that deter you it's not like oh it's broken up into microtransactions it's pretty much just letting you pay for part of the game and see if you like it hmm. uh, this is a full-on final fantasy game like the, the closest thing i can compare it to is final fantasy 5 it's its own standalone story it's got its own cast of characters some nice writing some amazing music some amazing battle and boss music uh, it's got the overworld it is a like a, a at its core, an actual, real Final Fantasy game. There's nothing about it that screams like, oh, this is a mobile game. The only thing that would do that is if, you know, you play touchscreen and then you go through the menus touchscreen and, you know, the font is a little bit bigger to accommodate for a mobile platform in the text uh, boxes. But anytime someone always tries to say like, oh, you know, I don't, I'm like, are you a Final Fantasy fan? They say yes, usually. And I'm like, well, Final Fantasy Dimensions, give that game a look. It might change your mind on uh, mobile games because if you're a Final Fantasy fan, and you consider yourself to have played all the games in the series, um, I would honestly consider Final Fantasy Dimensions to be um, not even a, a side like a side Final Fantasy game. I would consider this to be a main Final Fantasy game, just like people consider Final Fantasy Tactics to be a main Final Fantasy game. Even Final Fantasy Type Zero is sort of encom- uh, encompassed into the the mainstream Final Fantasy games at this point. Now, I'm not going to call this game like a triple A. But I think it should be considered a Final Fantasy game, just like seven, eight, nine, ten, and on are. So, I know it's a very bold statement. Don't go in with like incredible expectations because this story is, you know, pretty much as good as Final Fantasy. It's it's like a mix between three, four, and five. So that already of that already puts it ahead of Mystic Quest in some people's minds, I guess, right off the bat. Right. So just how Mystic Quest is considered. You know, a real Final Fantasy game within that series is mm-hmm. as different as it is, and you know, its history as being you know the game that was made for the United States. Um, I think this Final Fantasy Dimensions game is a hundred times more a Final Fantasy than Mystic Quest ever was. So, if you consider Mystic Quest to be part of the Final Fantasy series as you know an acceptable game within that series, you really have to check out Dimensions. Now, I haven't played Dimensions in a really long time, and I've been thinking about starting up a new file and streaming it just so that people can really appreciate certain you know what mobile games can be and what you're missing out on as you know yes i play a lot of mobile games like music rhythm games and card based games but there are video games that are exclusive on mobile it's almost like if you can't give if you can't give people like a platformer then they just don't want to consider like you know even an rpg for someone to make that statement about 
the iOS platform not being a video game platform, but then you show them a game like Final Fantasy, which, I mean, control-wise, I mean, what are you doing that requires a controller? Nothing. You're just tapping on the screen the same way you would be accepting and backing out of menus on, like you would on any other console. So there really is no distinction there that should cause problem, people to think otherwise. But then it's like, you know, their argument might be, well, you know, there's no, I can't, I can't control a platforming game or I can't play like a Super Meat Boy, Super Meat Boy style game on there. And that's what makes them dismiss it. I don't know. I never, every time someone brings it up and I try to get them to argue, not argue, but give their points as to why. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a short argument. You know what I mean? It's like, there's not many points that they can bring up that will convince me uh, outside of that point. So their argue. only argument just tends to be that they don't consider an iPhone or an iPad to be a, a gaming device, like a real gaming device. That's typically what I usually see. I'm like, yeah. so why, why don't you play mobile games? They're just like, hey, I don't, I don't play, you know, I don't consider those to be like actual real games. They just, they think all mobile games are kind of like free to play, like microtransaction, which is yeah. far from the truth. Yeah. I mean, granted, it does make up like 95% of mobile games. It's libraries. a very large majority. And yeah. I've fallen victim to that myself. <laughs> let me tell you, there have been a few games that I've played and some that will not go mentioned until <laughs> years from now when I'm ready to reveal what some of those games were. Um, with microtransactions that Pete's I Candy Crush addiction is about to be into. revealed here, folks. No, it, <laughs> it was not even close to Candy Crush. People would not even believe me if I told them. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, a future YouTube video of like most embarrassing games I've ever played in my life. Uh, I'll talk about it. Just like, wait for so. a guilty pleasures game, like oh, request or something like that. I, I can't even believe I got into it myself. But yeah, maybe, maybe in the future. And don't you, don't you listeners try and juice it out of me because you're not going to get it. <laughs> When I'm ready, I'll review. Yeah, we'll what wait this down the line. Particular game was, oh, you'll 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 think I'm trolling, but you'll see. I mean, what is that new Final Fantasy game that they've been pumping out on every goddamn like commercial for Twitch? And I mean, it's the Final Fantasy what Brave Exvius? <laughs> um, it may be Brave Exvius, but there's a new one that I get a freaking ad for on Twitch every goddamn time. I forget the name of it, but it's, it's not some that new 15. Final Fantasy 15 game. Yeah, um, it's. <laughs> I was actually looking at it today, oddly enough, um, <laughs> looking at the reviews on the iPad, because I'm like, let's just see what people want to say about this. No, that one looks like and trash. It is apparently garbage. Yeah, it does um, not look good. Reviews are just pretty much calling it, it's not even a Final Fantasy game. It's pretty much just like one of those microtransaction free-to-play games. It looks like a Clash of Clans style game. One of those kind of garbage games, yeah. not calling Clash of Clans garbage, but it's like one of those just... Endless thousands of spin-offs that just has Final they Fantasy skin slapped on it yeah. with no personality from the actual game. Uh, just a quick cash-in. That's all it is. But I thought Brave Exvius looked pretty decent. Like, it looked more like a regular game as opposed to any of those grindy I've ones. played some of those. Yeah, some of those games are not bad, but they are very, very grind-based. You know, it's, it's pretty much just stripping Final Fantasy down to its core of just mm. combat. Combat, 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 leveling up, getting new abilities, team composition. So if you like that aspect of RPGs, then those kind of, those kind of, uh, free to play Final Fantasy combat based simulators, we'll call them, will appeal to you. <laughs> I got pretty heavily into Star Wars Galaxy, or not Star Wars Galaxy, Star Wars, um, Galaxy of Heroes on my iPad, which is, you know, a very similar vein where all you do is just recruit, recruit characters and just level them up and, that's all you do. You just fight every day. But here's the thing. Those games are so intensive in that you really have to play every goddamn day. And I did it for a couple of months. Um, you know, this was building up to the hype of uh, Episode 7 and after. So I was, like, really into the Star Wars universe. And after a while, like, after a couple of months, I was like, man, I just can't do this anymore. Because it's not just like, oh, wake up and play for five minutes. It's like, okay, 
It's six o'clock. All right, get on and play. All right, it's, it's two hours from now. Okay, play again. Play again four hours from now. It's like you just you were putting you your dedicate... schedule around yeah. this game. Exactly. Like it oh just got to God. be ridiculous, and uh, that wasn't the only one I played. But I will say that I was proud to have only invested like twenty dollars into Galaxy of Heroes. <laughs> so, unlike some people that put thousands of dollars into these games, yeah, I mean, seeing some of these games and the the money that they make, that's, it's unbelievable. Just how you can't much blame it grabs them people. for. You, you can't blame them for going this payment method of sort of free-to-play with microtransactions that let you speed up the progress or get more credits to buy, you know, mystery loot boxes because people freaking buy them. Well. You know, I was into one of those games once where you open up a mystery box and you have a chance of getting, like, the epics and the legendaries for your characters. And it was it was pretty fun, I have to say. Like, I, I don't regret the money I invested into it. Um, it was a game called Dragon Soul mm-hmm. because I was really, really into it for several months. I was in a guild, you know, where we had a, <laughs> it was not a discord. I forget what it was called. It was called, um, I forget what it was called. It was a service very similar to discord for like your phones and stuff where, you know, I was so into it. I had this freaking, we were in a chat group on my phone where we can kind of like communicate like, okay, everybody get on. We need to attack and defend and all this shit. And it's like, it just got to be too much. <laughs> you know, I'm on there playing with, like, these 50-year-old grandmas and stuff, and they're <laughs> as hardcore into this game as I am. The guild like, have strategies you're learning. She was badass. Like, she was good at the game. Uh, I was a co-leader to the guild because I was, like, I was so into this that I was on YouTube, like, making tutorial videos on how to play the game for new members of the guild on a separate YouTube channel, like, private video that only the guild members can <laughs> access but that just shows you how into this this mobile game i was getting yeah, it was, it was that, fun that crazy killer team of pete door and grandma williamson right that was like the killer leaderboard <laughs> rank right there yeah, it was fun i, I can mean, just imagine you even... playing imagine you playing these games and like all your thousands of awesome retro games behind you just crying waiting to be played saying why are you spending so much time on this <laughs> ipad game you could be playing all of us <laughs> it was really the first time though that i delved into that that style of game where it's like okay you know those Facebook games with Farmville where people would have to like set timers so that they can go like farm their crops at certain times. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of my first exposure to that style of game, and I have to say it can get really addicting. It can get dangerous. So pull out while you can. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Hilarious. So before I forget, I wanted to thank because I told him I was going to thank him last episode and never did because I just completely forgot. But uh, for those of you that are enjoying our little intro and outro songs at the start and end of the podcast, I uh, just wanted to quickly thank Dig311Doug for sending us some tunes our way when uh, you know we put out the call. He was pretty much the only one that answered, and we were very appreciative uh, because uh, he's the one that you want to give credit to for the catchy little jingle at the start and the very somber, relaxed tone that you hear at the end of the podcast. So just wanted to put that out there. And a couple more people to thank because we got a few more iTunes reviews, which by the way, um, thanks to all of your reviews and and everybody that's listening to the podcast. Um, Last week when we, or two weeks ago when we put out the last episode, uh, we finally cracked the top 200 video game podcasts on iTunes. Now, we're not on there right now, but that's because we haven't put out an episode in two weeks because we're bi-weekly. Demanding. But uh, hopefully hopefully with this episode, <laughs> we're going to get back into that top 200 list, which is awesome because, you know, there's there's probably several hundred, if not, you know, probably well over a thousand video game podcasts these days on iTunes. So the fact that we're on there, I want to thank you guys for all your support. Um, let's just make sure I'm not rereading anyone's from last time. 
Um, hold on. Let me sort this from most recent. Okay, so we wanted to thank The Real Padrino, uh, Punk Rock Steady, Time Zones, Sergeant Pepper, and Gettysburg 675 for their awesome five-star reviews on iTunes. So thank Sergeant you Pepper Siding. Nice. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're going to get on to some games we've been playing recently. Um, Bovine, why don't you start? Because I've been yappering on about mobile games. Uh, what's some of the stuff <laughs> well, yeah, you've been playing you gotta, the past two You've got to speak from experience, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So let's see. What have I been playing recently that has intrigued me? You know, there was this one game. So I've had this thing where, obviously, on my stream, I like to do variety streams and play shorter sessions of games. And, you know, not really have the time to take to go through them all the way like you most of the time do, Pete. But there was one game. What I'm trying to do now, I'm trying to switch it a little bit. I'm trying to play a variety of games and then pick out ones that I feel, you know, are worth, you know, kind of go, well, I mean, all games are worth going through in general, but I wanted to pick out games to continue playing like during a weekday stream and just focus on that game to try to get, you know, through it. So obviously the games that kind of make that cut are the ones I'm going to be focusing on. There was definitely this one game on our beloved 32X platform, platform okay. that, you know, it's very hard to get everyone on board with, but there was a game on there called Colibri that obviously that I have decided to talk about here. Now, when, Play, now, this game, obviously, for people that don't know, this is a, um, it's a unique Echo game. the Dolphin with a Hummingbird, essentially. <laughs> Echo, is it, is it really just that? But the more I play it, right? Yeah. It's like, it's an easy way it's to do it. It's a difficult game. Difficult. Yeah, so, but for this game, Calibri 32X, it was an exclusive for the 32X, so you cannot play this game on anything else. So yet, one more reason to go pick up a 30X, 32X, people. But Billy, that's it's one of the is. games that made me want a 32X, because I fell in love with the cover. And the detail of the the game itself just kind of appealed to me. Yeah, the uh, I never got far in this. I've never <laughs> beat this game. It's so hard. The artwork is absolutely amazing. I mean, all of the hand drawn art, all of the sprite based art. It's not a three D game. I mean, it's basically. I found it hard to describe initially. I mean, Pete started out with you know calling it eco with hummingbird, which is not uh, not true. And in fact, the game almost starts exactly the same way as uh, Echo, Eco the Dolphin, you. which is very strange, right? Like you're just flying. The game boots you up. You're basically a hummingbird, and there's there's no UI on the screen. It's one of those games that basically try to give you an experience. So it's an artsy fartsy game, is what you're saying. It might it might start out that way, <laughs> but honestly, it turns into more of a standard game as you go through. But you're a hummingbird thrown into this world, uh, as, as hummingbirds will be thrown into. They're flying around, trying to suck nectar from flowers. You're trying to avoid you know larger predators such as frogs. So it took me a good. I don't know, maybe 10 minutes before I even realized what I had to do because there was no direction. Mm -hmm. There was no objective. There was nothing. Like I couldn't bring up a menu screen that gave me a mission. There wasn't anything obvious where I could figure out what it was I was trying to do in this game. I mean, for a lot of people, I'd imagine they would just, it would, it would kind of test their patience and they would just kind of get away. And maybe it's in the manual too, but eventually what happens is that you're supposed to pull nectar in from a certain flower. And once you do that, like all, everything in the universe or all the good birds or all the enemies, they get sucked into this whirlwind vortex and they get sucked away. And then you get immediately thrown into essentially what is your first level. And the way I would describe this game, I mean, it's essentially, it's a shooting game. I mean, your main, your main character, your hummingbird, has the ability to collect power-ups and shoot different styles of projectiles. But it's not quite your standard shooter. It's a game where each level gives you a different take 
on what would normally be considered like a shooting game. Like there are some levels where you get to fly anywhere in all directions looking for the objectives or looking for the exit. But then you may get to the next level, which then becomes like a more standard auto-scrolling shooter. And it may change it up a little. You may be scrolling from right to left, right, as opposed to left to right that you'll see. There's other times where it'll automatically scroll on both vertices. Like you'll you'll be scrolling for a while, going left to right, and then suddenly it'll move from, you know, top to bottom. So I thought that was cool that each level kind of changes it up a little bit. But the, the really interesting thing about it is that each level has very obtuse, like, objectives. Like you don't know exactly what the objective is. The majority of levels is that you're just going to have to find the exit. But in some of the levels, like you may have to defeat like a certain enemy. And it may be an enemy that can only be defeated like a specific way. Maybe it's an enemy that can only be defeated with a certain power. But again, you're not giving any hints. But the funny thing is, is that there's a very strange name for each stage. And what I found is that in the first couple levels, and I don't know if this is for the rest of them or maybe I just missed it, but there's essentially a clue in the name of the title that helps you figure out what your objective is. Like for this one level, it was called, I think it was called either Burst or Explosion. And the objective of the game, or the objective of that particular level is that you had to fly around until you found the certain enemy that looked like it was kind of tough to defeat. And the way you had to do is like you had to zoom behind it and like shoot it from the rear to be able to like make it explode and burst out. So other than that, you could just kind of endlessly fly around the level, never actually getting to an exit because there was no exit. The objective was to kill every one of these birds in that level. So it was very cool because the way I was playing it was, you know, obviously not looking at any information, any guides, anything, just trying to figure out if one, I could figure out what I could, what was the objective of each level and if not... If it wasn't obvious, you know, try to like examine the name to see if I could figure out what the objective was and go from there. But I mean, it really is a difficult game. Like you only have, you have one hit, you have one hit and you're dead. You can get a shield to give you two hits. And I think if you have an upgraded weapon, you can take a total of two hits. Yeah, before you're dead. So it's like you, you lose your power up for your weapon, then you lose your shield and then you're dead. So it really is a tough game, but you do get a limit continues, but it's almost more of a, I don't know. To me, it was more like a puzzle game, just trying to figure out how to get through each level successfully. But I really it's thought... It's like a blend of different genres, yeah. I don't I don't disagree with it being a puzzle game. From what I can remember, it's been a while since I played it, but it's... Mm. Uh, I think the puzzles come from just exploring the environments. It's it's very unique. It, it really does remind me of Echo the Dolphin, though, because Echo feels the same way. They just drop you in, mm-hmm. and you just start exploring, and not a lot is explained in Echo in terms of like the puzzles and stuff that you have to solve. It's more of just exploring your environments and finding your way through. Yeah. If not, Colibri is an even better example of it, because it does have a bit more gameplay than just like sonaring to your other dolphins or you know jumping out of the water. Because like you said, I kind of forgot. I actually forgot that it had the shooter element to it too which is pretty unique which is strange the game pushes the 32x graphics though in terms of what was that now like does does it look like it could be done on a genesis no i don't think so the color palette that it uses it actually seems like it's one of those few 32x where you can immediately see the use of a larger color palette right because the 32x was able to i can't remember if it was either able to display more colors simultaneously or if it was either to just only pull from a larger color palette than the genesis it's either one of the two or possibly both but that is a game where you can definitely see the color palette is the, the extended color palette is just because the game is just so much more colorful, more like there's more gradients for color switches. Like, you, you know, in the Genesis, you're going to see a lot of games where color switches from one tone to the next. They're very rough because there's not a huge palette to pull from. So as they gradient from one, you know, 
color to the next. It's a lot smoother in Calibri. Like you definitely see that being used in this game. And it really is a showcase, I think, for the technical prowess and not 3D technical prowess, like the 2D technical prowess additional, you know, processing color of the 32X. Just a really highlight showcase time. I mean, it's so unique and it's very, it's a game a lot of people should try with no, you know, walkthroughs, no guides, and just to kind of get a feel for a different style of game. I mean, similar to, like you said, with like Echo the Dolphin. Unfortunately, it's a little bit uncommon, so it's one of the more expensive 32X games out there now, uh, especially if you're going for completing the box. Yeah, that one is starting to get up there. So I think I got mine. I don't have the manual for mine. I didn't. Re- I thought I had the manual. I opened it up to try to look for information as I was lost in that game. I was like, oh, there's no manual here, so gotta <laughs> go hunt down the manual. But I think I got so. I played a little bucks. game. Oh, go ahead, Pete. Forty with the box and card. Yeah, yeah forty with the bad. box. I played a little game called uh, Sonic Mania. Sonic? It was good. Yeah, it was good. And I also played a game called... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Are we talking about a new game? We don't do that here, do we? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Sonic Mania, yes. The game that Sonic fans are clamoring for. Though I will admit I've been more anticipating Sonic Forces. Because I kind of had an idea of what Mania was going to be. And it pretty much turned out to be that. Not that it's a bad thing, but it's... The way I would sum up Sonic Mania is that it's a really, really good glorified fan game. Because it is made by pretty much fans of Sonic the Hedgehog that were hired by Sega. When it comes down to it, Sega themselves internally did not develop this. They they just basically hired, you know, um, the group that kind of, like, developed the mobile ports of, uh, like, Sonic City and whatnot for them. Uh, but what better group to hire, right? Because they are apparently really hardcore Sonic fans that threw in tons of... Obs- I'm not going to get too spoiler here because I know that Bovine still needs to play it. Um, but, you know, a lot of really crazy references to past games and throwbacks that, you know, even the hardcore of hardcore Sonic fans wouldn't realize initially. I mean, um, if you don't but, look twice at the game, it would look like a fan-made game in a way, right? Like it is, kind of it pretty up. much is, though. Like, that's what it is. It is a, it's a fan-made game that you know, had a big budget and is officially published and marketed by Sega. Was so, it a, like a lot kick, of Sega fan or Sonic was fans? Was it a Kickstarter game or? No, no. It just was a game that, you know, pretty much came out of nowhere, got announced and people went crazy over it about hmm. a year ago at one of those Sonic conventions. Um, that was infamous for being a really, really awful convention. I forget what one it was. <laughs> I, I couldn't even tune in and watch the whole thing because the entire, conference that they broadcasted on twitch had this audio hum the entire time that was just so <laughs> ear greedy but okay here's a little tiny spoiler though like this this just shows you the level of freaking detail and attention to like little hidden easter eggs that they put into this game so that press conference where they announced sonic mania um like at this show uh for that audio issue there's a boss in this game that's like a television kind of... Like, there's a television in this boss battle. And at the end of the fight, when you defeat the boss, they actually put that same exact audio hum, same frequency, same sound, everything, into the end of the fight when you defeat it. What? <laughs> Just as a little nod to the reveal of Sonic Mania, because when people originally seen Sonic Mania, for the very first time, they got to watch the trailer with this weird audio hum and buzz. That's a that real actually deep made dive. its way into this game. That's, like, super deep. Wow. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, the best way to describe this game is it's an amazingly well-made, officially marketed and published by Sega Sonic fan game. I know that's a mouthful. Um, the way I feel about this game is this should have been called Sonic the Hedgehog 4. It feels exactly like 
the original Sonic Genesis games, the controls are spot on. There's not a damn thing about this game that doesn't feel like an original Sonic the Hedgehog game. Sonic the Hedgehog 4, the episodic games that everybody forgets about that I wasn't the biggest fan of, those didn't feel like Sonic games. They don't feel like... I shouldn't say I don't feel like Sonic games. It didn't live up to the 4 on the end of its name. Sonic Mania lives up to that 4. If anything, this game should have been called Sonic the Hedgehog 5. Really, it's it's just perfect in every regard. It's drop-dead beautiful. There's a lot of nods to the original games without getting too deep, but you're going to find a lot of similarities to the original games graphically. Um, music, amazing. Some of the best Sonic music I think I've ever heard. Great remixes, great new tracks. Um, there's a lot of really nice new inventive zones with so many new enemies that are just... just it, it just kept escalating, right? I'm playing this game, I'm streaming it. And just when I thought I'd seen, like, the best boss or the coolest new enemy or the coolest stage, it's just like the next stage just tops it tenfold. And it's just surprise after surprise. The highlight of this game are by far the boss battles. They're so imaginative. They're so inventive. Some of them are pretty goddamn difficult, I'll tell you that. I struggled on a couple of them for quite a while. The bonus and special stages are true to um, ones in the past except certain ones are really ramped up in difficulty. Um, the new special stage where you're kind of like chasing the Chaos Emeralds is so much fun. I won't you know, go into too much depth there, but you're going to see a really, really cool reference to a certain Sonic game that I have a certain affinity for <laughs> that may or may not have amazing music. So <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that up to uh, people who haven't played the game to find out. But I'm just, I'm so happy with it, and I'm happy for Sonic fans. Like, I'm a huge Sonic fan, but I'm not like one of those Sonic fans that obsesses over every single game release and plays it, like, nonstop, like, to its core. Like, those fans that obsess over getting 100%, getting every single thing you can in the game, or playing it, like, 20 times in the first weekend. I'm not on that level. I'm really happy for those people, because this is everything that they've pretty much wanted from a Sonic game, um, officially released by Sega and not a fan game. Um, for such a long time, and I think it lives up to those expectations. Like, believe the hype. This is an amazing Sonic game that anybody, if you're intimidated, I've noticed there's a lot of people coming out of the woodworks lately that are admitting that they've never played a Sonic the Hedgehog game before, and I think this is a great one to dive into. If anything, I'd say this is probably the best Sonic game to make your first Sonic game, um, because it's pretty much everything that made the originals great, and then some. Is it the new best Sonic game of all time? Is my new favorite Sonic? No, because nothing will ever trump, you know, my original nostalgia and feelings for Sonic 2. But um, I think it is a new return to form, and I think the best news that can come out of Sonic Mania is that Sega may finally realize that, hey, maybe we should hire, you know, really hardcore fans of our games that are really good at making games to make games for us. And, you know, maybe in the future we'll see revivals of dead series that are made by fans of the games you know who would have ever thought Maybe they're the gonna perfect people to make the games would be the people who played them and loved them right <laughs> i know right like it's it's kind of cool of sega to, to kind of realize that maybe what they'll do is they'll make uh you know a lot of smaller independent studios that maybe work on a, a certain game like maybe a new jet set radio game or something right where they hire a team that's really passionate about the originals um, that they can kind of demonstrate in the past that they they can make games that can live up to what fans would expect from like a new Jet Set Radio game and have them work on it for a year and a half, two years, and then boom, there you go. Just have like these little subsets of small indie developers working on games for Sega. I think it's uh, something that could maybe even see like a revival of, I don't know, Altered Beast or something crazy. You know, It's just the possibilities that Sonic Mania opens for games outside of Sonic 
is pretty big, I think. Because hmm. a lot of people are buying and talking about this game. It's it's not flying under the, the radar. This game is... People are aware of Sonic. There's so many people that are like, wow, this is a new Sonic game? This looks amazing. Like, I have seen almost nobody, actually, actually nobody down talk or kind of like criticize Sonic Mania to a level that would call it a bad game. Yeah, Which is crazy, crazy, right? pretty universally. I mean, I guess they figure Sega's just, the franchise has been down for so long with so many games that have just been coming out to lukewarm, you know, very tepid receptions and sales and it's just been they've been striking out again and again and again with these trying to you know these like revivals and these reboots and these mixes and you know nothing was really working so it's it's good to see some success finally hit right gee sega who would have known that all it would have taken was just to make a sonic game that's similar to sonic 1 2 and 3 they should have took a cue from freaking Mega Man 9 when they saw the hype around that you know, when it just all it takes is just going back to the old style of the way the games used to look. Took them long enough. Was so. Mega Man nine and ten were they commercial successes for Capcom? You think though? I have. Um, I would say so. There were a lot of people that bought Mega Man nine. I mean, I know and the, enjoyed it. The press or like the reception, you know, by the game reviewers and the publications, they were very high on it. Of course, I, I'm trying to remember if they actually sold well though. I mean, I know 9 was bumpy because it was super impossible and a lot of people were kind of raging out about it, but it kind of brought out like a lot of the old school fans. But I wonder how much of a commercial success was it for Capcom? I'm not sure on numbers myself and maybe, you know, maybe some of the listeners out there can tell us like, you know, how, how it did for them. But, uh, I would, I would wager that there's enough Mega Man fans out there that uh, it, it was probably a success for them. I can't imagine yeah. Mega Man 9 taking that much resources to develop. That's true. It probably didn't on, cost you know, them a lot. Simple it is <laughs> in a way, you know. Um, yeah, so bottom line, Sonic Mania. Great game. I'm looking forward to playing through it again with uh, Knuckles. Um, because, well, you know, we can go exploring different avenues with Knuckles. I played through it with Sonic and Tails, my first playthrough, and that's what I'd recommend to everybody else. Well, can I tell you the truth here? I'll let the dirty secret out. I'm not the biggest fan of Sonic the Hedgehog. I mean, mm-hmm. that's okay. I mean, honestly, I, I was a huge Sega Genesis fanboy. Like at the time that the Genesis came out, I mean, I switched so fast from Nintendo to Sega. I fell in for the marketing. I, f- I fell in for the campaign. I fell in for the cool Sonic and the cool franchises, but. I mean, I have to say, like, the very first Sonic the Hedgehog I played, well, when I played the first one, I thought, oh, this is fun, I can go really fast, but I never got it out of my system <clears throat> that the game felt more like a showcase of, of a fast-moving sprite in a level that can move really quick, but not much else. Like, I always thought to myself, there's something very lacking in terms of things to do in the Sonic the Hedgehog game, because... I would always start out with the first couple levels. You'd zoom through them really fast, and then all of a sudden, the pace would just hit a brick wall, and then you were suddenly like plodding your way through these like mazes and you know underwater sequences that would just really slow things down. And I never got it out of my, <clears throat> I never got it out of my head that I just wanted to keep going fast and faster in these games. And you know, a lot of that was alleviated with Sonic Two when it came out, and then Three after the fact. I think is one of my is probably my favorite Sonic Three or my favorite Sonic game. But outside of those three games, like I'm not. I don't know what it is about this. They just feel like I, it's like a common complaint I have with many platformers where if there's not a lot of technique involved in the game, like I'm not a lot of moves for my character. Like I always tend to, I always tend to give the Mario games a little bit more play in terms of like Mario versus Sonic because of the complexity and gameplay, you know, options you have in a Mario game versus Sonic. And maybe I'm missing something about 
like those original Sonic games. Like maybe I was playing them expecting something else and should have been playing them with a different mindset to get the enjoyment out of them. But I don't know. It's like I feel like I almost need to play through those again at some point just to see what it was I missed about those games because I don't really hold them in very high regard. You know, in this like current standing. Although, I mean, like I said, watching you play the Sonic, the new one, it makes me want to grab that one and just maybe think, you know what, maybe I'll just play these games to get my my Sonic fix here. But I think it was just a product of the time too, because I played the original Sonic one and two when I was, you know, the pretty much the targeted age range for mm. what they were targeting for Sonic. Um, you know, I was playing Sonic two when I was six or seven or so um sonic one i'm not i'm not the biggest fan of sonic one either sonic two is by far way way better than sonic one sonic one is just uh pretty much the framework for sonic two to build upon you know it's it's a good game but it's not i wouldn't hold it in sonic one wouldn't even make like my top 50 games of all time if i had to be honest it's Mm -hmm. it's a good game but it's not it's not an amazing amazing game like sonic 2 um, but I could see where you're coming from, where, you know, if if you aren't grabbed by the fact that you're just going fast, then yeah, that you're not going to have a fun time with a Sonic game then, because, you know, if you... I think the thing about Sonic is the universe and the characters are kind of what grip me. I like the sort of unique style of a Sonic game, mm-hmm. where you got the Robotnik enemies, or the Badniks, you know, the robot enemies, and you got Robotnik as sort of this recurring boss that, you know, always finds a way to build this new contraption or robot to kind of face you in at the end of a level or the music. I think it's just the combination of just everything all together, just the style and the the universe itself of Sonic. That's why I always tell people, they're like, oh, you you collect a lot of Sonic stuff. You must be a like an expert at the games. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm actually not. I just really, really enjoy the universe and character of Sonic the Hedgehog. Mm. I think that's another thing is you have to kind of have a, a very strong appreciation and love for mascot platformers. Mm. And I think me growing up with the Genesis when I was younger and playing a lot of those mascot platformers, I sort of have this attachment to that sort of cartoony, edgy, um, you know, sort of like Bubsy style of mm. characters from back then where I can kind of really enjoy a platformer so long as if it's a medium, I mean, a a mediocre platformer, as long as it has a cool character, as long as it has interesting level designs, um, good music, I can kind of look past sort of lackluster um, gameplay where pretty much all you're doing is just running and jumping around and there's not much else to it. I can kind of look past those points as long as the other things such as the character and the the level designs themselves are kind of what I'm looking for. I I think too like so here let me ask you what what 2D platformers did you play back then and you actually enjoyed during the Genesis and Super Nintendo 16 I mean, bit era? for the Super Nintendo side of it since I I I bought my Super Famicom based on some screenshots of Super Mario World. I mean obviously growing up as an NES kid and playing through Super Mario Bros 1 2 and 3 like 4 had really high expectations from a kid who knew the game was going to be out in the U.S. for a very long time, was going to say it, and found that I could get a copy of it months ahead of the U.S. release by buying an import version. I mean, just seeing a couple screenshots convinced me that this was going to be one of the greatest games I will ever play in my life. And sure enough, I mean, to me, I mean, to me, Super Mario Land is, in that time, in that era, it was kind of the... I mean, it was the game that I put on top that everything, every other game was chasing after in terms of fun factor, technique, level design, you know, combination of graphics, 
uh, music, sound, all of those things put together, to me, it was like the high bar for games during that 16-bit era. And it felt like every other platformer I played afterwards was kind of chasing Super Mario World because it was, to me, just one of the most well-designed in terms of like gameplay and level design for a 2D side-scrolling platform that I would have ever played up to that point. And even throughout the entire 16-bit you know, lifetime, I really think I, I was chasing that experience for you know, many, many years after the fact. And yeah, I don't Super know. Mario World is, is quite the high bar to live up to. And I, I think I see where you're coming from, though, with the technical standpoints of a Super Mario World where it's like, you know, just the feeling and the weight of the jumps and mm-hmm. the way that you can just, like, grab shells and bounce them off of blocks and jump on top of the shell and then bounce off of that to reach another spot. Or the way that you can kind of, like, just slide down a, a, a slope in the game and <laughs> just the momentum of that and the way you can glide with the cape yeah. and solve, like, these mini puzzles with enemies. Like, yeah, it's so much more complex than, say, a Sonic the Hedgehog game. Yeah, and it was so funny, right, to think about during that huge console war, how it was always, like, the focus on speed of Sonic versus, like, the slow plotting gameplay of Mario. But in a way, it was funny to me because none of that advertising stuff hit me to the point where I was thinking, well, they're comparing it to a game that I basically think is much better. So it was kind of hard for me to see, like, see that argument. That was where I was starting to finally poke the cracks or, you know, poke the holes in the marketing, like, you know, BS line that they were always feeding me. I think that's why I started questioning things a little bit because I thought to myself, well, they're telling me it's a better game just because it's faster. It didn't make sense because I was having more fun doing more things in Super Mario Land versus Sonic. So. But I think to argue, though, it was very impressive to see a Sonic game running at the speeds that it was. Like, when Sonic is zipping around the loops and just, you know, going, uh, grabbing an invincibility power-up and just zipping through the level, like, at top speed. Yeah, it was always I mean, impressive. If that doesn't appeal to you, though, on a gameplay perspective, though, then, yeah, I can I can see why Sonic wouldn't be for you. Because you ran that, into right, one Sonic enemy. doesn't really have much going for it outside <laughs> of the speed. Yeah, and then real. it was full speed and awesome until you ran into one enemy, lost all your rings, and now you were like <laughs> back in zero oh, speed. God. That was me during like pretty much the entire playthrough of Sonic Mania. I found <laughs> it so hard to keep rings in that game, but yeah, I mean, I, I I can see the arguments for liking a a game such as Super Mario World over Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. And... I know I was getting killed in someone's stream when I mentioned that. They're like, "You don't like Sonic?" I'm like, "Oh, sorry." <laughs> it's a very sensitive subject for many people. <laughs> Well, something that we're going to discuss in a future episode is uh, Bovine doesn't make this public all that often, but he's not the biggest fan of 3D platformers. So I think that's a future <laughs> podcast discussion where we're kind of going to delve into that maybe a little deeper and into find out why. <laughs> exactly what it is about a 3D collectathon platformer that he finds difficult to get into. Because I love them. Bovine, not the biggest fan. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe we'll... We'll talk about that in the future. So if any of you guys have questions, if you're listening now, you know, if you want to, not even a question, but if you have a comment, uh, maybe in the next episode we'll talk about, you know, what is it about 3D platformers that you enjoy that you don't enjoy? You know, what is it about Super Mario 64 that makes it one of the best games of all time? What is it about Bubsy 3D that you absolutely hate? You know, let us know and maybe we can kind of build a a deeper discussion on uh, 3D platformers themselves and maybe... We'll try and play a game or two to kind of refresh our memories. Yeah, uh, any suggestions out there for any 3D platformers that could change my mind or convince me of the glory of those games? I mean, outside of Super Mario 64, which obviously is kind of a universally praised game that has no issues, right? But, I mean, for any of these other 3D collect-a-thon games, someone let me know out there. What's one to, what, what is one I should be playing to kind of you know make me think twice about what I feel about these games. That would definitely be something I, would, I wouldn't mind checking out. 
because the thing I find really strange is like you talk about the what you love about sort of the technical aspect of Super Mario World. I feel like there's so many 3D platformers out there that demand even more technical skill than a 2D platformer. Um, so I don't know. It'll be an interesting discussion. Yeah, but then they feel so janky it. in a 3D world. Well, okay, yeah, we can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Future, maybe next episode. Um, so was there anything else, Bovine, that you played? that you wanted to talk about oh um so i started so one of these things so there was a couple weeks ago i got a huge lot of like both 3ds and 2ds games just massive lots like one had 60 3ds games and it had pretty much every like rpg on the system that is worth getting and then on the nintendo ds side i bought like a lot of 121 games that had you know some rpgs there but there was one series on there that was being recommended to me because I've been asking fans since this was a area of my gaming. This was a, this was a period of time in my gaming career where I didn't play a lot of these games. I didn't make a lot of time to play. Like I only played a lot of party games and, you know, kind of multiplayer co-op games. And I missed out on a lot of these, you know, RPG games. Uh, and part of the reason why I wanted to stream like a long time ago when I decided, I said I wanted to take the time to sit down and play through RPG games because I figured if I were to stream them, Right. There would be no one in my channel. I could kind of sit there and just enjoy the game, maybe find a fan or two to kind of enjoy the experience of playing these RPGs. I thought, hey, this is going to be the perfect vehicle for me to sit down and play long play RPGs all the way through. Hasn't panned out that way because obviously, I mean, luckily for me, I should say there's people that are always in there hanging out, wanting to chat up like variety of games. So my whole RPG thing is kind of thrown out the window. But one of the things that I wanted to do, obviously, with people like recommending good games. And I know that Goji Fox out there, he was pretty high on re- having me try out the Etrian Odyssey games. And I thought it was an interesting thing we could do, because since I, I got a copy of Etrian Odyssey for the Nintendo DS, which is the original version and, of the game, but I also got a copy of this remixed version that they did for the 3DS, which was called Etrian Odyssey Untold the Millennium Girl. Which I didn't realize, but it was just essentially like an like a remixed, updated version of the original game. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to play through both of them. So we played through the original Etrian Odyssey first one week, and then the next week I played the 3DS version. So I'll kind of combine those two experiences into this one, you know, thought process here. But from my understanding, and I don't know, like we've Pete now you have had we've had this conversation about trying to get this definition of a roguelike down, because I didn't even realize that there were a bunch of... There was a subgenre of RPG games that were essentially called roguelikes. And, I mean, tell, does this game qualify as a roguelike? Because this, to me, just feels like a standard, really, like, yeah. a RPG, right? I would say this would fit under the subcategory of, like, dungeon crawler, mm. uh, is what most people would call this. Um, the only similarities to, like, a roguelike that maybe Etrian Odyssey would have is just... Oh, man... If there really are any, there's there's really not. It's it's pretty much just a straight up, because um, the dungeons are all pre-made. They're not randomly generated in okay. Etrian Odyssey one. All right, because um, I want to make sure I make that distinction as I like dive into these other genres of games. Yeah, just a on, so. just just a hardcore first-person dungeon crawler. Okay, pretty just, much any time where you're just in a first-person view and the dungeons mm-hmm. are not random and you have like. You know, you don't lose items upon death. It's such a... Man, the roguelike genre is so complex these days where a lot of things can fit under that, but Etrian Odyssey is not one of them. Okay, so I don't want to talk about these games in the wrong light in, like, future conversations. I just want to make sure I got that clear. It's so confusing to subcategorize these games sometimes. But, I mean, going through the Nintendo DS version at first, I mean, first of all, I was amazed. There was really good music. I mean, well, maybe I'm not amazed, but there was really good music, and it was One of the best soundtracks... The Etrian Odyssey series, in my opinion, 
would be one of my top ten, uh, five or so soundtracks of all time for wow. the entire series. It's Yuzo Koshiro is like it's his best work in my opinion, especially for the first three games. And someone had mentioned that that it was Yuzo Koshiro. I was like, really? I didn't know that he had got to the point where he was just like doing these extremely long RPG games with these because the music. Like initially, when someone said that, I was thinking there was no way it is. But then you listen to little phrases, and I guess you get a little bit of Yuzu in there, right? Because they really, it really is amazing music. And even for the compressed sound on the DS, and then moving over to the 3DS later, you know, you were able to hear a better version of it. But I mean, to play through those games and just to find like a really old school tough RPG with you know, so just, difficult. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things again where. Goji nope. Fox is evil telling you to play this for your first dungeon crawler RPG. Like, it is... Etrian Odyssey 1, going into that blind, which I know you went into it blind, mm-hmm. is probably one of the most brutal experiences you could ever throw <laughs> upon somebody playing an RPG. It was a little tough. Now, I will say the fun... The, the weird thing about that game was that when, when initially as I was starting it up and getting my party members and equipping them out and trying to get a just feel for the game, so I would just basically get my basic party members together... And then we went out into the dungeons. It's just, you know, one of the things I want to do in most RPGs is go out and get a sense of like how tough like those first enemies are in case I have to, you know, whether I have to set my mindset to grind to get better weapons or if I can kind of just plow through them. Yeah, that answer came pretty Ready to grind. (laughs) That was, that was shocking. I mean, the first thing though, which was odd, and this is, I blame both Goji Fox and Amahart or Amahart for this because they're both big fans of the games and they're in my streams a lot and, you know, they both were probably giggling behind the chat window. Like, oh, they you know, knew exactly <laughs> what they were doing. They, <laughs> they knew. Were, <laughs> they had the door creep thing going all night. And I was like, what is happening here? But yeah, you go now, out did you, there. Did you auto map or did you have okay. it? Um, well, did, was, were you filling in the map yourself? I was just about to get into that. So I've okay, never okay. experienced a game where, well, I won't say this because obviously back in the day when we were playing original games for the RPGs like Shining and the Darkness Fantasy Star, like at some point you would have to you know, physically draw your own maps on pencil and paper, which was always a great experience back in the day. Now, not having done that for a good 20 plus years or so, it was shocking to me that one of the game, one of the gameplay mechanics in Etrian Odyssey is that you literally use the second screen to map out your dungeon as you're walking through it. And it's not even that it's an optional thing. The very first task is that you have to map out the dungeon. Exactly. You have to walk through every step. You have to put down where the walls are, where the turns are, where the items are. I had no idea that that was part of the core gameplay of this game yeah. it, at all. It was, it was, it was, and it if was you make one... one wrong mapping. It's like, Oh, good luck. Oh fixing my that. God. I must have been wandering around that. No, I will say I, when I played the Nintendo DS version, I couldn't even map a third of it because I died. Like my entire party was just demolished and crushed. And it was, I was thinking to myself, well, because I, I didn't want the chat to tell me what was really happening. I wanted to figure it out on my own. And like you said, it was just going in there and getting my team just crushed, annihilated. Every time I would go back to the town and get new members or revive, and then I'd have to go back out, crushed again. Because I, I can get, barely get anywhere. And the level experience and money you were getting was not helping because they were barely giving me anything and I wasn't able to upgrade anything. So it was just, it basically got just destroyed in that game. So the following week when we played the remake version with Adventure and Odyssey, the Untold... Was it Untold Millennium Girl? Millennium Girl. Yeah. So apparently this version, some people were saying in chat, they were saying, okay, well, this is like a remix version, so you could basically play 
Pre-made um, characters. Yeah, you can play with pre-made characters. And it was cool. It was interesting because I looked at the menu screen when I started the game, and it said you can either play the original version, the original, you know, as true to form as the original version as much possible with insane difficulty in your own characters. And then there was this other option that talked about these pre-made characters in the story, which I thought was a cool option because, especially from my perspective, this is I just played the original, and I thought to myself, well, I just played the original. I don't want to play the original again. Let's try this other version see how they mixed it up, which was a cool way to do it, but... Having those pre-made characters, they were basically party members that were assigned to you with names, and they were like pretty powerful enemies. So you didn't, I guess, it took away that that mm-hmm. fear of just dying in every battle from the first one. But it was cool because then I was I was always able to go through that first dungeon and figure out that yeah, they want you to map everything. That was the goal, and you had to put every turn in, every item, and the number of times I had to go back, not realizing that they were expecting more. Like, not only did they want the walls in place, but they wanted the items. And not only did they want <laughs> yeah. the items in place, they wanted, like, these doors. And I, I didn't know what the hell it was that they wanted map. Like, there's very little direction that it would explain to you that you had to map everything down to the single item. But at initially, it was a very frustrating part of the game because, one, it was navigating around. But I guess the second time around the 3DS, since the battles were a lot easier, I was able to focus more as to paying attention to my surroundings and mapping these out. And in the end, funny enough, that mapping part of the game is actually maybe the more fun aspect after, you know, playing through Right, through yeah, see, and that's what I was going to kind of echo off of is the thing that really captured me about the Etrian Odyssey games. And I played Etrian Odyssey 1 day one when that game came out. Just something... Something because there were no really dungeon crawl RPGs like that at the time uh, on the DS. So I'm like, all right, let's give this game a shot. I had somewhat of an idea of what I was getting into, but I wasn't fully prepared for how actually really difficult that game was. Mm-hmm. But I eventually kind of just grew addicted to. It's pretty much a series that if you enjoy character growth and seeing your characters grow, and sort of going through the hardships and how you know the grinding aspect. This is pretty much a game for grinding. RPG lovers. Um, but it also, it's not so much just the battles that are addicting because you have full customization over your characters from, you know, you can make a party, um, if you make a party wrong of team members, you're pretty much screwed. You're probably not going to be able to finish the game. So party choice, very important. You know, pick your heal, your damage dealers, your tanks. I just like the, having control over what's in my party. And yeah, this goes back to like, you know, D&D type games or like the, uh, like, I don't know, ultimately, whatever games you can choose, like a full party composition. But I think the the art style paired with the music is something that, of course, is a, a staple of Etrian Odyssey that I think helped keep me kind of uh, playing that series for as long as I have. Um, but also the map, right? So the map is more so a game than the actual RPG battles where when you finish a dungeon floor in its entirety, like map out the entire floor, mm-hmm. it's so satisfying. It's like it's so hard to describe yeah. <laughs> how great it feels because you did it on your own. It feels like, you know, you really took a pen and paper and kind of mapped it out. And when you eventually conquer an entire dungeon and defeat a really, really, really difficult boss at the end, you know, you're dozen hours in that dungeon it just feels like such a great payoff because you feel like everything was done by your hands all the skills that you chose to skill up were your choice all the you know the time that you decided to spend in the dungeon grinding was your choice everything the equipment choices were your choice it just feels um the sense of accomplishment is so much greater in the Etrian Odyssey series more so than than any other game so because every battle can feel like a boss battle when you first get to a new dungeon it's very Mm -hmm very strategy heavy um, and kind of slowly working your way through. So if you're not a fan of RPGs where you kind of like 
do a little bit of fighting and have to go back to town and heal up and restock and then go back in, make a little bit further. I like to equate the Etrian Odyssey games to like reading a book, right? I like reading books because to me, I like watching my progression, as weird as it sounds, through like watching, uh, you know, the left side of the book get heavier in pages because that means I'm making more progress. So it's like, I like, I like seeing the progress that I make through a dungeon in Etrian Odyssey. And then when you eventually get to the end or beat a boss or like finish a chapter, like if you're looking at it like a book, I don't know. It's just really fun to me. It's, it's really uh, weird. I mean, it really does feel like a throwback to older style RPG games. Like I was yeah. thinking to myself, when was the last time I played a game similar to this? And I, I couldn't think of any. I had to go far back to like Wizardry on like the PC right, and the Wizardry, NES games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but just kind of. If cool. you enjoy Etrian Odyssey, a game that I think is even better in some regards is the Dark Spire. Uh, it's. Mm. An amazing DS RPG that is pretty much very similar to the Etrian Odyssey series. Just the style is way darker. The graphic style is more sort of um, gothic. See, and that the music might is turn more hardcore. Away from it. <laughs> oh, it's 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 a bit rough. Yeah. Is the storyline really important or really big enough? Because the funny thing is about the Etrian mm, game is that it's I a very cryptic story in the oh, Dark Spire. Okay. Uh, it's more so a game that you play for the presentation and the difficulty more mm. than anything. I gotta say though, I mean, I don't really see myself streaming the rest of Etrinus. Like, I really want to. I've been playing it offline, actually. It's not a good streaming game. Yeah, I mean, what? I mean, I don't know what it is. It's like some people really want to see. I mean, obviously, there's some big fans that want to see me play through it, but I, I can't imagine that watching someone grind like that is worth a Twitch experience. You know what I mean? Like, I find it. It's it's like a tough choice that I have because again, I wanted to stream RPGs. To start with, I think but. the way you have to approach it is on a night where you know that you have to do some leveling up, just spend that hour or two off stream just grinding. And then when you feel powered up enough where you want to start progressing through a dungeon and mapping it out and maybe making your way to a new boss or something, that might be when the stream it because that's when that sense of discovery and, you know, oh, there might be a, a boss right around the corner kind of thing um, would come into play. Whereas the grinding aspect, yeah, that's that's. I mean, there are people that love watching people grind in RPGs mm-hmm. on Twitch, but it's a it's a small minority, yeah. for sure. Um, Which is tough. I mean, I really because I do remember playing through so many RPGs when I was younger, when I had the time, and like grinding to me was the enjoyable part, like grinding in Final Fantasy two and three, and just leveling up to the point where I would be, you know, indestructible going into the later, like bosses and stages. Like I actually, that was a very relaxing part of the gameplay, mm-hmm. but I just I can't see how that would be something. But there was where... story peppered in throughout, whereas Etrian Odyssey, that's pretty much the game is just All grinding. Grind. So yeah, it's. Uh... It's not the best series to stream. I will be streaming Etrian Odyssey 5, however, because, well, oh, I on love five? the Etrian Odyssey series. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 5 Jesus. is coming later this year. So. I better uh, catch up. Then. Well, the thing about the Etrian Odyssey games is I actually believe they're best played in reverse order because every game adds in just a little bit of a new mechanic and typically everything they add in is just an improvement. But are they dumbing, down? Are they dumbing down the games from this kind of hardcore grinding? Oh. I don't think any of them would be as hardcore as the first one because of how new the concept was at the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's no, for the most part, they still keep their really hardcore roots. I think the only thing that makes it easier is that um, fans of the series are becoming more and more familiar with the tropes of the game and kind of mm-hmm. what to expect and the way to build their parties and their characters and stuff like that. So, you know, I think the difficulty is only eased up upon uh, simply because people are becoming more familiar with how to actually play the games. Hmm. Um, 
But I would say that the the 3DS ones are a tad easier than the original DS ones for sure. Yeah, just the overall difficulty wasn't quite there. I almost want to restart. I wanted to start a new file on the 3DS with the original gameplay mechanics, but with obviously the enhanced, you know, graphics and sound and everything else, and see if like maybe that's like the best of both worlds experience where I get the original difficulty, but with the upgraded, you know, graphics and sound. So. Like you said, it's a great option that they have um, to have the single-player mode because pretty much at your Odyssey, when you play it, the story is almost non-existent. The characters mm-hmm. have no personality because they're just peons that you create and you name and you equip. But in uh, the Untold game, uh, Millennium Girl, and they did the same for the second game. I forget what the subtitle was. Fafner Knight. Right, right. They did the same thing where they add in a story mode where suddenly your characters are pre-made, predetermined, they, they have dialogue, they have personality, uh, and there's an actual story to it. So I never really felt like the Atrian Odyssey... You don't really play an Atrian Odyssey game for the story, even though, from what I remember, they weren't terrible in those two remakes. Very basic, um, probably. But yeah. I played a little bit of it, and I just moved right on into the original mode because that's Atrian Odyssey to me. It's about creating your characters. It's about creating a party that's your own. Um, I don't really care about having predetermined characters. Yeah. Well, I'm grabbing the CD from Untold Millennium Girl. It's going into the car tomorrow. So. <laughs> oh, I, I have several Etrian Odyssey soundtracks in my car. I love the music so much. I actually imported um, three Ahu Japan auctions many years ago, like remix CDs that people in Japan made for the oh, music. Nice. So, like songs from the games, just like completely redone by different people. Yeah, great music. Cool stuff. Um, let's so, see if there was any game you wanted one, to finish off. Huh? One, yeah, there's. Well, let me just say, um, I have very small pickups afterwards. We can cover into. So. <laughs> I don't have too many things in terms of pickups, so I'll I'll just rapid fire through a couple of games here, uh, real fast, because there's a lot on here, and I'm never going to get to all of them. So Farpoint on the PSVR, I finally got a bundle of that with the controller the aim gun and that has been an incredible experience uh, i've been anticipating this game for so long but it's been sold out everywhere and i will just say believe the hype if you have a psvr farpoint is essential it's uh, it's a first person like very story driven cinematic based uh, exclusive game for psvr and it's so good i have, highly highly recommend i it. have one question on farpoint how do they handle movement of the character they give you a lot of different options um are any of them so, good <laughs> you can pretty much cater it to whatever way you want. The way I do it is, um, right, I might change it, but you do use the left joystick for movement, and then turning left and right is just by turning my head left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to play around with that, because you can pretty much set it to any way that you would you would want to control a first do person they have the warping, That's just the default. Do they have the warping point-to-point movement system as well? They do. It's optional. Like, mm-hmm. pretty much any movement system that you can think of. Um, wait, they might not have the warp. But they do have sort of like the clock-based thing where, like, your screen just, like, goes in, uh, like, stop-motion kind of, you know, mm. where it's, like, shifting. So I, I feel explain? like you know in all of those about. VR, like, first-persons, third-person, it's, like, just the movement thing is always going to be the issue right now until they figure out, you know, some real way to do it. But I, I've played very few games. I mean, I play most of the VR games on Steam and um, Oculus not on the PSVR yet, so that's like the first one that I'm not going to have the ability to check out. So I'd be curious to see how they handle it because that's always the thing where you're trying to let the player get a feeling of movement but not constrain them too much in the VR space. So it's kind of a tough call right now for a lot of VR games. I would say that this one handles it really well based on what I played. I played it for about an hour, hour and a half, but I had to stop because, uh, you know, 
after a while in a first-person game like this, you start to feel the onset of motion sickness. Oh, yeah, so I had, sure. to, had to put it down for a bit, but I'm going to go back to it. It's promising, though, for sure. Um, I also played Evergrace on the PS2 for the first time. That was a launch game here in the U.S. I'm not sure about Japan and Europe, but probably. Um, that was really fun. It's developed by From Software, so, you know, Demon Souls, Dark Souls developers. Um, this was their launch, one of their launch game, PS2 games alongside uh, Eternal Ring. And it was really fun, actually. A lot of people were kind of like, when they saw I was playing it, they're like, oh, Evergrace, that game. I'm like, oh, really? But after about an hour, I was really getting into it, and uh, kind of a shame I put it down for this long, because I did want to get back to it. It was, it was pretty difficult, too. So it kind of some parts of it really lived up to the, the From Software. Uh, I'm surprised you, know, you didn't play that at launch, actually. Or did well, you? When, I didn't. I didn't actually get a PS2 right on launch day. I got it like maybe six to eight months after it came mm. out. Um, but back then, I wasn't really playing those weird Japanese quirky kind of games. You know, I was more into the first-person shooters and the platformers, and you know, I, I'm not saying I wasn't playing Japanese games, but I wasn't really looking at a game like Evergrace and being like, "Man, I need to play that." Yeah. You know, um, so it just wasn't really on my radar. Especially because the PS2 launch had so many games. That was too many. That, yeah, it. You know, I was picking up stuff like Dinosaurs Two and Fantavision of all. I was, yeah, I was playing Fantavision, so that was that was a big party hit for some reason. <laughs> That's a great game. It's really a great game. Um, I also played Cubivore. After all these years of hyping that game up and wanting to play it, I will say that it was a little bit of a disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, I would certainly not recommend that game for the prices it goes for. I didn't pay the the crazy obscene two to three hundred dollars it's going for now um i got my copy without the manual so i saved quite a bit of money and i used a discount coupon on it too so it was kind of it wasn't that bad um but the game after i feel with cubivore this is the rare atlas published um game on the gamecube that i'm sure you you know once you see the graphic style where it was Mm -hmm. originally supposed to be on the n64 and it uses all these blocky cubey um animal characters and all you do is you just eat other animals and evolve and make love and that's it like it's such it's a, a good representation of life i guess <laughs> it's such a simple repetitive game that has depth don't get me wrong it's not like the game is like that dumbed down but i feel like after the first hour you've pretty much seen the entire game the graphics have their charm it's it's very uh unique looking we'll just say um, it's hard for some people to look past the graphics in this because it pretty much does look like you're playing an N64 game, just a little bit up res. Well, um, I mean, the style of it is definitely unique. But I, always, I when I was watching you play, I feel like they missed a big, they missed a big point of the game where they you could have done uh, greater character customization to enhance or give you more abilities than what they have. I mean, it seems like that's a core mechanic, but they don't they don't seem to expand on it as much as they should have. Given from what I played, design. right. From what I played, I now I could be we can be completely wrong because I only played maybe three three and a half hours or so, mm-hmm. four tops. Um, yeah, the combat just basically boils down to locking on and chomping. There's no like you're evolving and it changes your the way you move. Like it might change the speed at which you move, your jump height, your jump distance. 
but it doesn't really ever do anything for your attacks, so the the combat <laughs> just gets to be so repetitive. Yeah, nothing ex- ever really changes. I was expecting a 3D version of EVO, you know, which where in that game, as you evolve and change and modify your character, your animals, like you get you get completely different attacks that are unique from one power up to the next. So I was just hoping they were going to be doing the same thing with Cubivore. Yeah, they they didn't from what I played. Um, so yeah, I'll just say that if you're a collector, you know you're gonna want it for your collection because it is a obscure and a rare GameCube game. But if you're mostly looking to buy it to play it, um, which I would hope you would be, um, that's why I bought it. I wanted to play it. I would steer you in the opposite direction to be honest for the prices it goes for. Yeah, I, I moved it down my list of to get after watching it. So if I run into it, great. If not, no no skin off my teeth. So. <laughs> Uh, I also played for the first time ever the Donkey Konga series <laughs> on the GameCube, but I played the Japanese versions, so it didn't have the horrible soundtrack from, you know, the U.S. version <laughs> that I don't think I even want to hear. Well, you don't want to play Britney Spears or the Conga beat? Come on. No, not, not really. It's um, awful. So Donkey Konga, for those of you that don't know, in Japan, Europe, and the U.S., the games had in pretty much entirely different soundtracks depending on the region that you bought it in. So when I was originally researching the series, um, I had I have the means to play Japanese GameCube games because I have a Japanese region-free GameCube. So I'm like, okay, let's go with the Japanese versions because first of all, the third one never came out anywhere but Japan. So that's a bonus right there. And then you don't get all that stupid license music that's... Uh, the U.S. versions have, or it's the European versions. Yeah. Like, there's some really awful music. But what I came to find out is that, well, first of all, Donkey Kong is developed um, by the same development team in Namco that did the Taiko no Tatsujin games, and you can definitely see the semblance, which is the way the game looks. But what I realized is Donkey Konga, even in the Japanese version, so many of the songs are so freaking boring and slow. <laughs> now, most of the tracks are taken from, like, Japanese anime or television shows and a few games. But, oh, my God, some of those songs you can, like, fall asleep to. They would, like, lullabies. And I'm there pounding <laughs> away on drums. And I'm thinking to myself, this is some of the worst music selection for a music rhythm game that I've probably ever played. Now, don't get me wrong. It was fun. It was still fun, you know, even playing on my HDTV and dealing with the weird sync issues and, Mm -hmm. you know, the the input delay with the controllers to the TV. It was still fun, but, my God, the music selection, even in the Japanese version, was just so abysmal. And there was three three games, right? Like, it was one game plus two add-on discs or something? Well, no, it was three standalone games, Donkey Konga 1. Donkey Konga 2 and Donkey Konga 3. So, like, three standalone games. It got slower and worse as you went through the versions. I started with three, and I worked my way back. And, oh, you went um, I would say each each game probably had about, like, five to seven or ten at most, um, like, really hyped up, like, songs that would fit in a music rhythm game, and then everything else was just, like, Nintendo, what are you thinking? This is I just mean, not... Again, not so much I'm, Nintendo, Namco. a missed opportunity, right? It's like, pull from your franchises for... Christ's sake, you know, get all the chip tunes, get all those things in there. I, I, I was surprised at how few there were that, that were actually like the best ones, at least from the ones I heard, and just missed the boat on it again. Yeah, needless to say, I won't be playing or tracking down any other versions of Donkey Kong. I think I got my fill, I got my understanding. And for those that don't know how it works, it's pretty much just a two note system. You have a, you actually come, uh, it comes with a set of drums, two bongo drums. Um, there's only two notes in the game, a left drum and a right drum. You can either 
hit just the left drum, just the right drum, both drums at once, or you clap. You actually clap, and there's a microphone that'll detect your clap. But there's a cheap way where if you just slap the sides of the drums, it detects it as a clap as well. And that's what I do because it's just a lot easier. Yeah, that mechanic is what kills me for that series. Like I, I just see it as a dumbed down Tyco, like a not a very good Tyco. That's you know, like, pretty much what it is. I think if I'm gonna play a game like Donkey Konga, I'm just gonna play Taiko because it's just a hell of a lot more fun. Superior, Superior much music. better music. Yeah, better presentation. It's just yeah. so cute. Yeah, Taiko all the way. Anyway, um, another game that I wanted to briefly talk about because it's such a curiosity and an oddity is. A game on the PS2 called Hanuman Boy Warrior. Now, Ooh, this game, this one, I have a little bit of a history with because I went when I went to India for a study abroad program in college. I went to a few game stores, and this game is a game that's developed in India for sale exclusively in India. And India itself didn't even have copies of this game that I couldn't even find. Um, now, there was some controversy with this game where you know people were upset because you're playing as sort of a uh, a god figure character, um, Hanuman. So there were a lot of people in India that were upset because they didn't feel that you should be playing as a god because, well, you know, it's a god. Um, because that would be like religion. here, you, <laughs> right? Exactly, religion. So they were upset about that. Not saying that that's the reason why it was hard to find a copy, but who knows? Who knows how many copies were made? So what do you know? I go to Long Island Retro Gaming Expo a couple weeks ago. And someone there is selling a sealed copy of this game. I was so surprised. I'm like, holy crap. You know, I got it for like 10 bucks in a $10. bundle deal with a few other games. Um, and I'm like, okay, I can't wait to stream this because there's like no information on this game really. Like video, there might be some video on YouTube, but I didn't want to watch it and spoil it. And yeah, it's a really... <sighs> the game was developed in nine months. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's a 3D action adventure game where it's, you know, set within Hindi uh, or Indian mythology where... Um, you know, you're, you're going in the temples, you're, you're fighting Hindi sort of like mythology creatures and monsters and stuff like that. You can play the game in English or Hindi, you know, as an example. And the English voice acting is actually pretty decent. The story is pretty much, well, there, there really isn't much of a story. Um, I would recap it, but I don't want to sound like a fool when I get something <laughs> wrong because it's based off of religion and stuff. So let's, let's, yeah, careful, we won't right? go there. You never yeah, know. we're not going to go there. Um, the game itself, though, for nine months in development was very surprising in the ambition. I think that's the biggest thing I could take away from this game is that the ambition was there where they had this grand scale of a game where at times I was playing it and I'm like, wow, this reminds me of like God of War in terms of setting and level layout. Um, but at the same time, the combat was incredibly shallow. There was no depth to it. There was like no combos that you can do outside of the basic button mashing. Um, it was just if they had given if this developer had like another six months or a year to work on this game it would have turned out to be an amazing action game on the ps2 because playing in this universe that i have never played a game that you know was set in a universe like this before um was super impressive and sometimes i had to stop and kind of just take in the environments and say man this looks great just imagine if they had a little bit more time to kind of develop this or wow look at these enemy designs and people that were watching the stream were kind of like wow look at that that boss is awesome the voice acting is cool the boss looks badass like this three-headed hydra thing um some of the cutscenes were pretty awesome like flying on top of a giant eagle into this sky temple that has like these 
once again God of War types sort of like giant statues at the the entrances to the doorway, um, and then you go in and you're sort of like dungeon crawling your way through. Like really cool concepts. Um, just a it felt it's a budget game. Like that's what it felt like, even though I don't think it was released as a budget game. But still, it was just a very very cool thing to check out. Um, it took me six hours to beat, but just playing a game, pretty much the only PS2 game that was developed in India, for sale only in India, and being able to kind of share that with people from start to finish, the ending was god awful. Uh, it was just, there was I couldn't almost hang on no ending. ending. It was just, there was much. almost no ending. Yeah, it was bad. Um, it was really fun because I feel like so few people outside of India have probably even played this game let alone beat it that to be able to kind of share that experience was pretty cool yeah generating the interest for that game in your stream was amazing like everyone like no one had a clue about this game it seemed like i don't think anyone knew about this game so just to get people interested in showing it to them seemed like that was a good thing i mean not to diminish the the work from this indian team for this indie exclusive game which is a really cool idea but i almost get the feeling if you reskin the game as like a tarzan game in a jungle it's pretty much like that kind of game you know what I mean? but you know still it's very right cool. I- but the the thing about it too was just the you can tell that there was love and care put into it they were from the story that was there and the voice acting that was there and the, just the character designs and there was a lot of attention to detail where you didn't think there would be attention to detail mm-hmm. in terms of and that the part way of the the probably couldn't even identify right like it'd have to be well versed in indian religion it's, culture right too. it was a game made for <laughs> their culture that could definitely be appreciated um, but here, like in the U.S. or something, it would be a little bit harder to appreciate it because we're not completely familiar with, you know, that culture. Yeah. So it was, it was a passion project is the best way to put it that didn't really have the budget or the time that it needed to, hmm. uh, to be fully realized. Yeah, it definitely looked um, rough in the beginning, but then as you played through the later levels where it started getting a little bit more varied in the stages, it looked, looked pretty decent. I was impressed in the middle parts. I don't. I don't regret my time with the game. Um, <laughs> it was it was worth it to share it. Yeah. Uh, the last game that I'll talk about is hmm, which one do I want to talk about? Actually, you know what? We'll, we'll actually okay. I do want to talk about this game, Jackie Chan Adventures. I started oh, playing. You were gonna pick that one just the other night. Uh, I didn't want to talk about it yet because I still want to play more of it and maybe beat it. But my God, did this game impress me. So this is a game that's based on the, the television show, Jackie Chan Adventures, that I never really watched. I've, I've been aware of it. Um, but it never came out in the U.S., so this is a PAL exclusive. Um, apparently it never came out here. It was going to come out here, but then the publisher went bankrupt, so that's why it just never came out. Uh, but, man, did this game take me by surprise. First of all, it's cel-shaded. And I love my cel-shaded games. And this is one of the coolest graphical styles for cell shading that I think I've ever seen. Outside of maybe like Wind Waker and Cell Damage and Okami and stuff like that. But it's got a very heavy dark black line and really bright, vibrant um, colors to the, the cell shading in this game. Really, really well done. thing that took me by surprise, though, is that everything about this game is just... There's so much content. It's It's got hub worlds where there's people walking around cities and you can kind of interact with them, do side quests. Uh, it's got dungeon crawling where it's sort of like a Tomb Raider meets Uncharted game on the PS2 with cel-shaded graphics where so far I'm a few hours into the game and I've gone to like Japan and I've went into a Japanese castle and solved some puzzles and did some platforming and fought some bosses 
and I went to a temple in Mexico. That's the way the game started, where I'm like pretty much tomb raiding. I'm finding artifacts, I'm dodging uh, traps, some platforming. It was just so much fun in this Jackie Chan universe with cell shaded graphics, with voice acting, uh, likable characters, because all the voice actors from the show pretty much came back to reprise their roles for this mm. game. So even though I'm not familiar with the show, it's got some pretty good voice acting and characters to it. And from what people were saying in chat that are familiar with the show, it's incredibly accurate. So a lot of the returning characters and winks and nods to locations from the show. Um, just though the, 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 it feels like a great, I hate to say it because the game is called Jackie Chan Adventures, but it's, it seems like it's going to be an amazing adventure game. Um, the locations are incredibly varied. There's stealth elements. There's, there's action and combat. So it is a Jackie Chan game. So you're probably wondering how is the combat? Uh, it's probably one of the weaker elements because it's pretty cut and dry where it's just, your basic uh, square combos and triangle combos for kicks, and you can kind of interweave those back and forth, but it doesn't really seem to change much in terms of how much damage you do, or, you know, the only difference would be there's a spin kick that can kind of do an AoE attack. But beyond that, the combat is pretty shallow, but this is not a beat-em-up. It's it's adventure sort of, there's almost. combat peppered in. Yeah, it's, it's more of like an adventure game, it really is. Uh, there's combat peppered into the temples that you go into and stuff, but there's not an overabundance of it. Which is a good thing because it's not—it's not the best. There's a lock-on system, but it's just there's not a lot there. Um, there's talisman that you can find that can say give you a speed boost or let you double jump. That uses a a chi-based sort of like mana system um, or give you more powerful attacks. But everything it does—it doesn't do anything exceptionally well. But what is there um, as a whole, it does pretty well. Sounds like so, good variety, if anything. A I mean, lot of variety. And was the art style, because it was striking in the way that it looked, because it's not, it's, it, it had a unique look aside from other self-shaded games, but was that the art style of the of the cartoon itself, or was it a well, take on not necessarily, it's, you know, the cartoon looked like pretty much any other cartoon, but oh, okay. how do you want to represent a cartoon in a game? Just give it a really heavy self-shaded look, you mm-hmm. know, it's pretty much, you know, like just like the Futurama game. Uh, and that one, the Simpsons game, sort of went for that heavy cel-shaded look to kind mm-hmm. of represent a cartoon. That's the style they went for here, except very heavy-handed in the the black lines and just very stark contrast between the colors. It, lo- it looks really cool. The it makes it thing unique, would be though, for sure. It stands out. You know, so. Yeah. There's also a fishing mini game, So you know no when boy. a game has a fishing <laughs> mini game, you know you're in deep it's, with, like... It's made the list. Oh, how could I forget? Oh, my God. I got so excited because they actually had... I was breaking open pots and defeating enemies, and I was getting collectible cards. <laughs> card collectible? Stats. Yeah, there was a collectible card game in here Wait. where I'm, I'm getting cards for the enemies I'm defeating, and there actually are decks that you build, and you collect this, this set of cards, and you can build a deck and fight other characters in the game. Unfortunately, it wasn't as fun as I was hoping, but there's a oh, okay. freaking collectible card game in here. <laughs> that more games, more cool. games need that, I guess. Huh? Oh, Let's not forget, it also has iToy support, apparently, for, for other what? mini-games. For the iToy, like the motion camera that was on the PS2. Yeah, what did it use it for? What's, uh, for in this game, I'm not sure, but it probably has uh, mini-games where the camera would detect your movement, and you can kind of like interact with the game. I never oh, played okay. an iToy game before, <laughs> but that's in there too, just as an example. Now, if they would have went full boat and did collectible card game iToy game, then it would have really <laughs> put it over the top. Well, it's a good thing they didn't, otherwise I'd probably be collecting the cards right now. <laughs> and speaking of cards, Bovine. Oh, yes. It's a good, it's a good segue, and this will be the last <laughs> thing we'll talk about. Uh, we're apparently getting into 
the Final Fantasy trading card game. <laughs> That's so how, how fast th- things move now. <laughs> how, how this happened was uh, I was watching Gunstar Hero 7's uh, Hyperscan stream this, this past weekend, which was a really great stream. Awesome of him to highlight such yeah. a weird and, well, I wouldn't call it underappreciated, but let's just say a system <laughs> that is not loved, giving it its proper chance on Twitch. But, you know, obviously a, a system that is uh, based on scanning cards and playing them on your TV. Um, the discussion of trading card games came up and I was like, gee, I would really love to get into that Final Fantasy trading card game, but it, you know, I don't really have any friends that play them or whatnot. And then suddenly, <laughs> uh, you know, we started talking about the possibilities of playing this game like over video chat and now suddenly bovine has bought a starter deck i've bought a starter deck other people are looking into investing into getting cards for this as well so that we we can play the final fantasy trading card game which if you don't know it's a physical trading card game that's somewhat new it came out earlier this year uh they have three sets out that takes characters and creatures from the final fantasy universe from all the final fantasy games and it's you know sort of a magic the gathering style card game with final fantasy characters that is not digital you can only play it in person so what do people like me and bovine do we play them over webcam apparently so (laughs) we're gonna gonna see how this goes we're gonna need to require everyone to have two cameras one for the face and one for the cards so everyone's gonna have to have the full setup to participate in this oh geez (laughs) yeah so it's it's gonna require us to have like a pretty and anybody here is welcome to participate if you want to try attempting and getting into this and like getting in on the discord and playing with other people that are getting into this Final Fantasy trading card thing, if it takes off, I would say hold off. We'll see how it goes, right? We don't know how hard this game is going to be to play over the internet. We'll, we'll see how this goes. But the idea would be is that each person hooks up a, a Logitech C920, uh, because I would not recommend any other webcam, because you're going to need good quality to be able to see each other's cards. Um, and then we just kind of learn how to play over the internet. We're going to read the the manuals and see how to play and then kind of feel our way through how to play this game because it does look a bit complex based on the rule book i read but it seems like once you get the hang of it we'll get it down but it, i feel like it's going to be a lot of like hey bovine can you read the effect of that card to me one more time because <laughs> you know the text box is like a paragraph you know no way um, we're gonna some of them are out. a little wordy we're gonna yeah. figure this out damn it it's cool because this group on discord so we created a discord room for it and i'm already like 30 messages behind on it because there's a lot of people that have jumped in. They're excited about the idea of this. But it sounds like everyone's going to be new to at least this game. Maybe not new to card battle games, but it seems mm-hmm. like everyone's going to be new to this version of it. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this works with everyone learning it, figuring it out, and trying it for the first time. I'm excited. I'm looking I think it'll to be it. a really fun experience. That's why I recommend everybody just get a starter deck. But Bovine got the Final Fantasy X starter deck. Garbage. Garbage. I got the Final Fantasy IX <laughs> starter deck. So, of course, Final Fantasy IX will beat out ten. But they didn't have we'll, six we'll so, or five, which I no, would yeah. or four or whatever. Not yet, is. not yet. They have one for seven, eight, nine. Thirteen, right? Thirteen and type zero of all things. I I don't know where they picked those games from. So, yeah, they're three sets in. I'm sure they'll have others in the future. But that doesn't mean they don't have cards from Final Fantasy VI. They're in there. You just got to get the booster boxes and packs. But I think it's funny. I think in the future we're going to see people suddenly unboxing Final Fantasy packs. be a lot of Final Fantasy boxes on their Twitches. Instead of Bovine doing a video game stream, he's just going to be sitting there opening up Final Fantasy packs all day. Four-hour unbo- un, you know, unwrapping stream for all the booster packs. Get ready, folks. Strap yourselves But oddly in. enough, it's very satisfying. I like watching people open 
booster packs for stuff I don't even care about because when they do pull that one rare card, like that super rare holographic squa- <laughs> uh, like cloud or squall or something like that, like oh that could be so fun. It's all gonna be trade bait, Pete. You know that, right? Your your treasure well, yeah, game that's... collection is gonna be cut down with all these cards you want. That's another thing though, right? Like this little community we got, it'll be much more fun because we'll be able to trade cards. So if someone is looking for a certain kind of card for their deck and you have it, or you have doubles, we can trade within the Discord. It should be fun. Yeah, I'm looking hopefully. forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, too. This will be my first card battle game ever, actually. So. Oh, really, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never really gotten into physical card games. I played mm-hmm. Magic for like two months in like middle school or high school, and I got out of that. Um, I did the whole Eye of Judgment thing on PS3, which mm-hmm. was a pretty big investment. And now I just do digital stuff. Because it's just convenient. Because I don't have friends that play uh, card games in real life. So this is, you know, a game that you can only play person to person. But with the magic of the internet, we're going to see. So if you're interested, I'd recommend just going on Amazon and picking up a starter deck. Just pick any old one. Um, jump into like the retro. Each. Jump into the retro community Discord. Just you know, ask anybody here or myself or Pete for an invite. We'll send it to you. you can jump right in and join into yep. the fun and madness. $20 investment, and then, you know, I'm sure it'll eventually turn into all of us buying $100 booster boxes somewhere down the line. <laughs> I already got my eye on one. So. <laughs> um, but I think that's about it, unless you had any other game that you wanted to, to mention, Bovon. No, I think that was, uh, that was, that was pretty much, I think we've reached, we're, we're gonna try not to overextend ourselves and keep things around, you know, between two and two and a half hours. So I think that's a good listening time mm-hmm. for most people, from what we've heard, so. Yeah, don't expect any five-hour marathon podcast. Because <laughs> you guys got to remember, like, it's it's actually... Because Bovine's West Coast, I'm East Coast. And uh, our, our schedules pretty much mean that we can conveniently only record, like, maybe once, one day during the week. And that's Sundays. Uh, it's currently after three in the morning for me. <laughs> so Bovine, he's, he's, he works on a clock there. He's, he's up all night. He's about ready to stream. But, yeah, it's... Uh, our times getting together can be difficult sometimes, but hopefully, uh, you know, yeah, hopefully Pete, you guys. Pete keeps still... trying to reset his sleep schedule, but it keeps getting thrown off every time we record. So. Yeah, it's, well, it is what it is. But <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, thanks everybody for tuning in and listening. Just a little quick reminder the podcast uh, will be available every Wednesday uh, bi weekly. Otherwise, uh, you can get it a couple days early on my Patreon. Thanks to the few people on there that have been joining up and supporting on there to get the podcasts on uh, Monday afternoons, a couple days early. So thanks to those people that have been joining up on the Patreon. And other than that, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Remember that you can send us questions, questions or comments. You know, it doesn't have to be a specific question. If you just have a comment on something that's going on uh, in the retro gaming collecting realm or even modern stuff, you know, we can talk about some modern games here and there. Uh, you can just send us an email at uh, retrogameexplorers at gmail.com. Or if we're ever streaming and, you know, you want to direct us a question or comment on there, we can do our best to kind of make a, a mental note or whisper us a question that you may have. If, you know, email is just not your thing, that's fine, too. So we'll see you guys on the next episode. Have a good night. Th- thanks, everyone, for listening, and see you in stream.